You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, his dark materials, episode 7, Northern Lights, the Golden Compass, chapters 18 through 20. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet as Liza Narber on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizaNarberGold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana, and you might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit or as Arithmetric over on Twitter. And she likes horses. And I do like horses. Sometimes I just want to like introduce you or any guest as like, I don't know how a journalist would, you know, like <laughs> I sit across from her and she's glam with her heavy lashed eyes and her swift hair with the ease in her face that says she's thinking about horses. Yeah, that's not what I look like right now, everyone. <laughs> just just spoiler, this is very uh this is very inaccurate journalism right now. <laughs> I would be a great journalist. Uh, yeah. Uh writes for what? The Daily Mail. <laughs> oh my god. Out here. Uh, no, I'm a sun reporter, obviously. Oh, wow. So we're on part three. Spellbard. We are. We've transitioned from Bullfinger to the land of the bears. Yeah. And actually, earlier today, I was stumbling around on the internet and I came across an article about the 2011 bear attack in Spellbard. I didn't really read it, but there was a bear attack in 2011 that was horrible. Uh, Killed a bunch of people. And Oh. Yeah. Like... I didn't realize that still happened in this day and age. That sounds really dumb to say. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, there's always bears. I mean, my my parents live in a northern state and there's bears up there all the time. They see them all the time. My grandparents have them like on their porch. Really? Like they've seen them in their like, they have hunting cameras and they've seen them come on their porch and stuff. It's crazy. I think it also depends. I, I didn't read this incident. I know you sent it to me. I'm sorry. But it depends on what kind of bear it is, because I know some are way more aggressive than other ones. For example, polar bears or ice bears, depending on what you are reading, right. are very aggressive. And for some of these bears, as we know from reading this book that is actually nonfiction, uh, some of these bears, it's like taboo for them to fight. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Unless the... There are times that it's really, really asked of you. <laughs> yes, this is real life, so. Um, yeah. <laughs> Eliana, the can you tell us... can a bear be brave? Oh my god, I can't bear you. Oh, uh... wow! <laughs> Don't roar at me. So, Eliana, will you tell us what, what we're about to do here tonight? What's coming up? Chapters? What, what are we doing? What are we doing on this podcast? So, we are reading this book, Northern Lights slash The Golden Compass. Not watching. We did that already on a Patreon episode that is out near you. <laughs> this week, though, we are covering chapters 18 through 20 of Northern Lights slash The Golden Compass. First part of Svalbard, which is actually part three. I'm doing a terrible job explaining this. Chapter 18 is Fog and Ice, a saga of fog and ice. Oh my God. Chapter 19 is Captivity, and chapter 20 is Mortal Kombat. Yeah, all of that is followed up by a discussion, uh, originally led by Eliana, still led by Eliana. She can read it? if she wants. I mean, I guess not really. I'm too far gone. I'm gone, you guys. I'm gone with the dust and the wind. I, uh... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for understanding the reference. Discussion is our book spoilers after section. 
tune out if you don't want to know what happens in the Golden Compass Northern Lights or Subtle Knife or the Amber Spyglass during this. Um, and honestly, quite honestly, you're near the end. This is our second to last Golden Compass Northern Lights episode, right? So at this point, the discussion is going to be mostly Subtle Knife and the Amber Spyglass. But yeah. then there is an even dustier discussion, the dustiest discussion, if you so will, where I get to spoil everything, you guys. I have finished everything. I am done with all of the pieces, all of them. I'm out here messaging Eliana going, I'm thinking about doing a chronological reread where I read everything in chronological order of when it would have happened in events. And she's like, what? And what I'm like, I don't know. What is this one thing? I'm also just yeah. like, what? Yeah. This is going to be where I make connections through the books and talk about my discoveries because I did Your finish discoveries? Yeah, my discoveries. I finished Commonwealth, though. So yeah, I'm a, I didn't know that. I'm a scholar. Congratulations, yeah, I finished you it are. Just the other scholar. day on Saturday, Sunday, something like that. The Lord's Day? Yeah, the Lord's Day. I think it was Metatron's Sunday. Metatron's Day? Metatron's Day? <laughs> daddy? The, Whoa. The daddies? Whoa. The daddy, the Holy Spirit? Oh, Metatron. damn. No, he's not the Holy Spirit. He's just... He is to me. Kind of. Oh, damn. Okay. What? Um, <laughs> yeah. So we have the discussion. And I mean, I'm going to be honest. I'm sure that a lot of you who are here at this point in the books right now, you read ahead. I know you, you all finished. Not. I know you all finished the books already by like this point, but whatever. We're gonna keep pretending that you hadn't, like for mm, this book yeah. specifically. Like, I mean, it's only three more chapters until the end. Well, last week we did cover some really fun stuff with Tana. We covered the Silver Guillotine in the Witches with Tana Ford last week. Uh, we did have a really weird audio issue at the top. We re-uploaded a new file the morning of the release. So if you haven't, please clear your cache. Redownload that version if you haven't gotten to listen to it yet. It is a better version. Eliana was just quiet, which doesn't happen. That was very strange. I don't know. I mean, are you talking about know. me in general or like like your? I mean, well, and <laughs> your <laughs> your audio though. No, you are always uh you're you're a loud roarer, mm. uh, and uh you're a great tormund in our song oh, and fire discussion. Yeah, but a loud one. So I'm just saying that generally your tracks tend to be bold, and it was not this time. So it's fixed now. She is bold once more. Bold, bold. You're yeah, back. that is true. There are times that uh, my audio has actually blown it out, etc. So yeah, very, very strange. It's probably because it was almost Halloween. It's probably just some spooky things going on, you know? Yeah, there's. Uh, we even have another Friday the 13th in December, I think. So. Wow. Yeah, Fun never crazy. stops. Yeah. So... so- Chloe, you did something also very exciting this past weekend, didn't you? I did something. I did something uh, a little exciting. Eliana, I got to see the very first episode of His Dark Materials, the BBC HBO New Line produced series. Wow. Before everyone. Yeah, even before one of our friends, Warren, likes to joke, oh, I'm going to see it first. But nope, I beat you. I beat you all. So I saw it on the, what, the 26th, I think, on Saturday the 26th. No, you traveled forward in time. Yeah, I traveled forward in time. I am a time traveler. I travel through worlds. And obviously time is not a straight line. It's not linear. It is a uh, wibbly-wobbly thing. A Jeremy Baramy. (laughs) Jeremy Baramy, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. But... I saw the episode. My local library did a pre-screening with HBO. 
yeah, so support your libraries, please, please, please. It was fun. They had a really cool scavenger hunt. You had to go Aww. around and get different stamps and find, like, there There Aww. was, like, it was really cute. You had to find Hester, or there was a bunny that was, like, a statue that you had to go find. There was a big witch's shoe with, like, a broom against it in one room that it was in one of the, it, it would tell you hints about where you could find it. And that was for Serafina. You had to find, like, a cat statue that was all lounged out or something Ooh. for Stelmaria. And we got stamps, and once you got enough stamps, you got a really cool book cover. Uh, it has the show cover on it. It has Lyra from the show as Daphne Keen as Lyra. Yeah. But you got a little paperback, which is awesome, of the Golden Compass Northern Lights. And there was also a make-your-own alethiometer arts and craft thing. I didn't end up getting to that. But the best part, and I don't want you to be jealous during this, was that we got to get our photo taken with Eoric. You got your photo taken with the King of the Bears? Okay, spoiler alert, we're not at the end of the episode yet. Chloe got our picture taken with the King of the Bears. Yes, I did. Uh, we got our picture taken with Eoric, and it was fabulous. It was, like, obviously very cold where they were keeping him. I'm just kidding. It was green screen. We all know this. Uh, it's up on no, my it Twitter. No, it wasn't. So... It was a real bear. <laughs> yeah, a real bear. It's up on my Twitter. So if you guys follow me, go scan it. You'll find it or something. But it was fun. Uh, the episode was really fun. I know you guys don't care, obviously, about that. You want to hear about the episode, and I'm not going to give anything away. No spoilers. I want everybody to have an enriched experience on their own. There there were some good things, though, non-spoiler things. I would give it, like, I don't think it was a 10 out of 10. I think I would say it was, like, an 8 out of 10, which isn't bad. It's still good. It could have been better. It could have been way far worse. Uh, obviously better than the Golden Compass, which I think gets, like, a 4 or 5 out of 10. It's, like... 70 to 80 percent faithful i would say there there's a handful of changes nothing crazy but just a handful of changes i would say the most like non-spoilery things i could say are mrs coulter yeah she's zero to 100 already i'm just nodding my head going yup that was it's good ruth is ruthless she is yeah thank you i'll take my raise um, she's amazing though. No, she's great. And she really pulled it off. You guys are going to enjoy her character. I'm really excited. I mean, just thinking about what's to come in season two, I'm so excited about, you know, lots of cool scenes. Really got the character right. Roger. Mm, so good. I love Roger. I love him so much. You'll love him. You'll be happy, Aliana. Oh, I do love Roger. Ugh. This one is mm. decent. Um, you'll like it. There, there was no respect for a handful of characters, in my opinion. Interesting. This is non-spoiler unless you've read The Commonwealth, but no respect for Alice Lonsdale or Malcolm Polstead. But there's another character who gets a little disrespect, in my opinion, adaptationally. I won't say who it is. It would be a spoiler if I said it for the plot moving forward. But I was just like, I see you. I see you making this adaptational change. You could have done differently. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Otherwise, there were just like tiny little changes that I kind of see why, like, like we talked about in our Golden Compass patreon episode you know oh they set this thing up by doing this and putting it here instead of here and there were a few things that were like that that i was like okay they moved this around to do this here some of it worked some of it i was like yeah fell flat but we'll see what happens later so uh oh the egyptians also were great they they get expanded oh. on a little uh you and tana i thought needed to know that that they, they bring get that expanded in on. the first yeah. episode interesting yeah the pacing sounds interesting i i'm curious when they would decide to bring things in of course because they don't have to do it as chronologically, right? 
And I mean, right. I guess we do see the Egyptian children in the first few moments of the book. So I'm, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I, I know that they have moved the setting just slightly a little more modern than it, it seems to be in the books. A but little only bit, a little. But not much. Not yeah. much. I think it's still indistinguishable. I think uh, you'll watch it and you will you'll be immersed in the show enough to not think about that or notice. Uh, there wasn't a lot that jumped out to me that was like, oh, this is much more modern. Um, definitely still get, you get Zeppelins, you get everything, you get Oxford looks beautiful. I mean, the nice thing is that Oxford is classic, right? That's a classic look. Yeah, I hear it still looks like that, I guess. I don't know. Oh, yes. And the one thing that I would say we get during... During the scene in with the scholars with Lord Asriel, which we know happens, you do get that scene and you get to see things better. Uh, the pictures in the photogram are better mm. and you get to actually see things and you'll see something within it for sure. He shows all the details that he talks about in the books. So it's very cool. Very cool. It was just like beautiful, too. And the intro's pretty and everything's pretty. So. Well, damn, I'm super excited. Yeah, I'm worried. I think that comes as a Game of Thrones, a Song of Ice and Fire fan. It's also different because there was no TV show of this yet. So now I'm kind of invested and I'm kind of worried like, oh no, what if this is how people that were invested with the Song of Ice and Fire books felt? Like, I'm just worried. I don't want to be let down, but I think I can enjoy it for what it is. I think it'll be harder just because Pullman's already been burned once. Everyone's already been burned once, right? the ones who loved this book series and had a movie come out. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, assuming Pullman has retained a little bit more of that creative control, I, he doesn't want to make the same mistake twice. There's definitely religion. I mean, there's definitely some religious stuff going on. Now that I think about it, I'm happy about that because that was obviously what they removed in the movie adaptation, if you can call it that. And <laughs> I don't know. I, I I just hope they go there. I think that's my biggest wish for this, right? I hope they just go there. I hope they dig in and just get there because it's edgy. It's dark. It's gritty, right? And this was the first episode. So that's the other thing. It's opening us to this yeah. world. There's no Kate Bush song, though, oh. in it. I can't tell if that's Spoiler. like a hit or miss. Lyra. Lyra. It was stuck in my head again, like after editing that video. Which, by the way, so if you are really excited, of course, for the upcoming TV show, until then, you can spend some time hanging out with us watching the movie that <laughs> flopped. It was my first time watching it that weekend with Chloe because I knew, I knew that. I was going to be mad, but thankfully, you know, we have a second chance at life, but on our Patreon for $5 and up patrons, you can find a video of Chloe and I together going (laughs) over the Golden Compass movie. Yeah, we're drinking wine together in the flesh. It is a, it's weird. We did have one of our friends, uh, Shadow Fox over on Patreon said, really cool, kind of weird, but really cool to see you guys together, like (laughs) drinking wine and joking and chatting about stuff and i'm like yeah that's that's it guys this is there was a whole like 45 minute skype session before this it's it's terrifying (laughs) yeah that's just like who we are in general we just happened to not be on the computer this time yeah it was really cool it was nice and 
I will be visiting again for sure. Yeah, or I will be visiting. Yeah, you do owe me a trip, actually. So, uh, Eliana, go to Philly trip. I think that's in the future for sure. Maybe a holiday special. Guys, Chloe came over and, like, my place isn't even unpacked. It's a mess here. And she came over and stayed here. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm a good friend. You are. You are. You're a a good friend, too. Eliana made me lunch. It was great. Um, Next week, we're going to finish Northern Lights and the Golden Compass. We've been saying it's going to be before the episode but we had a change of heart right we uh, consulted our alethiometers and we think we're gonna let it come out after because we want you guys to have a couple days to get into his dark materials the episode and i think we want it to resonate because this is the end of book one right this is this is big and this is this week is the pre-finale right next week is the finale so if this was yeah. game of thrones someone would be dying horribly this week someone does oh shit well there's probably gonna be death throughout all of it let's be yeah real. this is the penultimate season one episode and by season one i mean uh season one as in these books not the actual season one which is premiering in a few days oh my god can't wait so yes it is the end of something right after the beginning right like we are wow. we're ending this but you guys will have something new to start with we will be doing episode reviews definitely after this for you guys so stay tuned for those to come out after the episode sometime yep and until then here we are and of course as you'll all remember we have this other series that we read it's called a song of ice and fire and we do episodes about that too we read the characters so we are going to be back with our Jon snow chapters on november 8th for the public Once we finish Northern Lights and the Golden Compass, we will probably be taking a break from the main His Dark Materials books to focus on these episodes that are coming out. The time, you know, don't want to put too much on our plate. And of course, finishing Jon Snow (laughs) chapters. Winter is coming after all. Yeah, we'll be back in the new year. Start up some subtle knife action. I think uh, everyone will be jazzed and ready. Hopefully those of you that maybe are listening to us right now for the first time. You might not be listening when this is aired. Maybe you'll be coming to us as new readers after the show has aired and finished. It's an eight-episode show, so it will be finishing up around the holidays. Hopefully you come back to this and join us for Subtle Knife. Yeah, it ends on such a beautiful family note. Family-friendly note. It's a family-friendly book. It's a family-friendly Lord of the Rings. It's a family, yeah. That's that's the golden compass. (laughs) Movie. For sure, But of course, before we jump into reading today and getting on to that golden compass, I did want to come talk about some tweets and emails of notes. We won't go into any spoilers. This is very no context. But our friend Stephanie, Stephanie Coldell on Twitter, S-M-K-U-L-D-E-L-L, tweeted at us that if you think about it, Fergie's hit Big Girls Don't Cry applies to the end of Amber's Spyglass. I think you should sing it. I don't think I remember the tune for this exact part. Oh, I got you. It's like, yes, you can hold my hand if you want to. I want to hold yours too. And then she's all like, we'll be playmates. It's like, we'll be playmates and lovers and sure. Yeah. And like, quickly. Secret worlds. And it's all, but it's time for me to go home. Interesting. I could see that. Another one that would be good is closing time. Oh, that's a good one too. I am printed because I finished rereading the last book a few hours. Like, once more, I'm going to relive this traumatic story for everyone. I took a red-eye flight. 
to London and have imprinted Daniel Benningfield's song. What is it called? If you're not the one or something like if you're not, if you're the, not one. the one then why is my heart feel sad to say it's that, that song yeah it's yeah. that one it, it makes no sense in many ways but you can force it, it to fit the end of the, the ending if you wanted to when you're delirious right when you're delirious have not slept in about 20 hours and are about to go into another like 12 hour work day that beat too like that melody and beat like even if you're not hearing the words yeah i imprinted that and also adele's hello hello from the other side so those are the songs i now associate with the ending it makes no sense i was in a very emotionally vulnerable state the good news is, like, I've I've listened to a lot of Rose Tyler playlists from mm-hmm. Doctor Who, and no spoilers, but there there's some uh, there's some stuff that could work for it. So I feel like I could compile one. I haven't compiled any yet, but I could mm-hmm. do a playlist. I can make us a playlist. Maybe we'll do that. We'll put out a Girls Gone Canon His Dark Materials playlist, and maybe I'll do some uh, Aswaf ones. We'll see. We'll see. I made an Aswaf one for end of season six or something back then. I've fun. got a handful. I've got a handful. Character ones, so perfect. We'll, we'll work on it. Yeah, it's always fun. I like making playlists. To totally switch gears, another tweet of note. So, when we had Tana on, we read a lot in email regarding uh, eugenics and experiments that had taken place at Bolvangar and how that relates to a history of Lapland and the Sami people who lived there who were persecuted. And we actually got a follow-up tweet from the center, who is Lojatko Murer on Twitter at Eagle Cotton Scump. And they said so a content warning about eugenics here and goes, hi, thanks for reading my email. I want to expand a bit on the things I wrote after you talked about lobotomies and gender. In the forced sterilization I mentioned, there was definitely a gendered and classist aspect as well as a racial one. Mm-hmm. Poor people, especially women, were considered quote unquote unsuitable to have kids were targeted. I couldn't find that many resources in English about it, but there's an excellent article about the history of racism in Sweden that mentions it. Low links it and we'll include those links in the episode description along with some other Wikipedia articles and you know some parallels that you see around that time also in the US. And Chloe, of course, touched on these, which is why I think this is a really interesting follow up. Yeah, especially to look at what was happening, especially in the same time period around the world, right? It wasn't just like this happened in a land far away a time long ago. This was happening in recent history all around the world. And there's a lot of oppression. I mean, you can look at Hong Kong and things that are going on in Syria and just there's a lot going on in the world that it's always happening and it's war and people, you know, mutilating other people for their own gain and power and just because they can. It's it's very sad and it's very exhausting sad and it's crazy to see all this stuff happen around the world with similar things like what Lo is saying about the eugenics movement in the US. As you said, it's very timely. I'm interested in how they might address some of those issues in in the books. I think that a lot of popular media has the power to be able to bring issues like that into public conversation. So you know, thanks. Thank you so much, Lo, for sending us all this and like educating us about it because we didn't know about this. And I think it's yeah. important that people understand, as you said, it's 
much more recent than people think it is, unfortunately, uh, a lot of these. And I mean, if we don't understand where we're coming from, if we don't understand that history, then we don't understand those systems that are at play and risk repeating them instead of actively fighting to to stop them and make things better. Yeah, for sure. Just like Lyra. Hmm. Yeah. And so with that, uh, we enter chapter 18, Fog and Ice. Right now, Lyra and Roger are curled up asleep, and uh-huh. Lee Scoresby throws some furs on them. Yeah, he does. Thanks, Dad. God, this all actually feels really Snow Ice Queen, like we mm-hmm. were talking about, right? With the, the different fairy tales, the grim fairy tales. Everything feels like they're going to the snowy wonderland. Lee is chewing a cigar and he gets deeper into furs and he talks to Serafina Pakala, me in the background, like shooting off air horns, about how important Lyra is. And Lee wants to know if he needs to prepare for more danger and war. He's not trying to be rude at all, but he was paid for everyday problems and he was paid kind of like a courier service, right? Not an act of war in Yeah. He was paid to be, like, a driver, not a soldier. I would be mad, too. I'd be like, mm. this yeah, is not what I signed up for. And, of course, the whole conversation, I mean, the gist of what we're going to talk about here is, like, she's like, well, that's too bad because now morally you have to because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, damn straight. And he's like, I mean, I guess, but also that kind of sucks. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's a little immoral, right? And granted, it just kind of happened for him. Mm-hmm. that he I got mean, wrapped up in it that's the thing is yeah you're in war you don't know when you're gonna eat next you don't know when you're gonna sleep next like there's no security and he literally says i didn't get active war insurance and it's more than that i get that because it's a livelihood what he's doing is like a independent entrepreneur taxi company you know and i did yeah. a little research there's not a lot but there are a couple free ebooks, and there's one called oh. the American Aeronaut. <laughs> there and it's are about... free ebooks. Yeah, and it's in the early 1900s. There was a pair of brothers that they ran a ballooning business, so this isn't exactly the same. Uh, and there was no info on what they made for actually each trip or anything, but they were offered a salary of twenty five thousand francs, so like twenty five thousand one hundred forty one dollars today, and a weekly salary for workmen was around 1900 US dollars today here in the US. So uh, it, it was an industrial shop. So the workmen would work on eight machines at a time. And I don't know how long it took to make them, but obviously each one probably sold for a pretty penny. And that was just a business. Like it wasn't for someone flying and already made on his own one and upkeeping it and finding a clientele. And it's like I said, it's like Uber and Lyft, right? Except he has no boss. Literally and... Lyft. Yeah, it's literally, oh my God. You're, you know I'm right, though. Yeah. You know, ballooning can make, like, hot air balloons can make you thirty to to $100,000, like, today, depending on your clientele and your balloon and your upkeep. And there's limited data. But also in the 80s, the University of Illinois put 600000 into their aeronaut funding for the fiscal year. So it's obviously a growing field and always was, just not in the entrepreneur way that Lee was doing it, right? And... I don't know. The government also would probably call it illegal, right? Like, the authority would be like, interestingly, that you're flying and we aren't getting any cut of all these things. It's very Firefly. Lee Scoresby is very Firefly. You know I never watched that yet. Oh my god. We'll work I'm on sorry. It. Yeah. We'll work on it. Fuck. God. I know. I'm a disappointment all the time. I don't know. Uh... It's like It's like taking an Uber. Like, 
I take an Uber across town and then that guy is over there and someone needs to take it upstate and he can only cancel on a few people before he starts losing money and business and the ability to run his hot air balloon, right? And the next person then needs a trip over the state boundaries and the next person is like, well, I'm going here and then all of a sudden he's hours away from home trying to make money and survive and feed a family and they're like, these are long trips, man. Interesting. And being attacked. So, yeah, and now throw in a war. Lee is like the buddy in the high school group with like the mom band that he gets to borrow and he could cart everyone around, I guess, because I didn't really have friends. But I mean, that's what I imagine. Everyone's just like, cool, we could take your mom's van, Lee. Thanks. I did have a friend like that and that was a ride. You know, we didn't, for some reason, the first time I went in that van, the seats weren't up. And also, so we, I guess, just didn't wear seatbelts and that was dangerous. Kids and adults don't do that. Yeah, it's kind of like that, but only way more intense. And he sounds way more like an adventurer than my friends did in their mom's van. <laughs> anyway, so the second Yorick lands in Svalbard, though, he's like, they're like, there's going to be a war, all right? You can't do that. Serafina tells Lee that there will be danger in war, and Lee stresses, okay, but my contract is only about transportation, <laughs> all right? I didn't agree to fight, and if I'm going to meet Lyra's enemies and risk my life, like, you know, all of this is just, like, talk, though. Yeah, like, they're they're in war already, Serafina says, whether you know it or not, and you're going to have to make a choice, which that's, like, the big advertising gambit right now for season one of HBN, <laughs> isn't it? Right, like they're like choose a side, and I'm like, I don't know if that's. I guess it's foreshadowing, right? But uh, I feel like it. I don't know. I guess that's great. They're they're gonna bring that in though. So Serafina to choose a side. <laughs> exactly, right? And I'm like, okay, I get it. It's dark. It's foreshadowing. Ooh, it's spooky. But spooky. the first episode is like you know Oxford shit. So you're like, eh, scholars, dusty, whatever, dusty, haha. Um. Serafina responds, you don't have choice in this matter. Do you want me to be Lee because I can do my voice? Okay, sure. This is my ship. <laughs> okay. Oh my god. Us? Are we your ship? You yeah, and I? right now, this passage. Oh. Oh, I like choice, though, he said. I like choosing the jobs I take and the places I go and the food I eat and the companions I sit and yarn with. Don't you wish for a choice once in a while? Serafina Pakala considered and then said, Perhaps we don't mean the same thing by choice, Mr. Scoresby. Witches own nothing, so we're not interested in preserving value or making profits. And as for the choice between one thing and another, when you live for many hundreds of years, you know that every opportunity will come again. We have different needs. You have to repair your balloon and keep it in good condition, and that takes time and trouble, I see that. But for us to fly, all we have to do is tear off a branch of cloud pine. Any will do, and there are plenty more. We don't feel cold, so we need no warm clothes. We have no means of exchange apart from mutual aid. If a witch needs something, another witch will give it to her. If there is a war to be fought, we don't consider cost. One of the factors in deciding whether or not it is right to fight... Nor do we have any notion of honor, as bears do, for instance. An insult to a bear is a deadly thing. To us? Inconceivable. How could you insult a witch? What would it matter if you did? Okay, several thoughts, but first, I love witch queen socialism. Holy shit. Yeah. If another witch needs something, 
then another witch gives it to her. That's girl code, like, right? About tampons. That's Sorry. girl code. Serafina Vicala is like, hang out in the bathroom. What you need, girl? Some hairspray, some tampons, True. some body spray. I got you. Bobby pins. I got you. Yep. Bobby pins. She always has bobby pins and ponytail holders. Mm-hmm. That hair's got to get put back, you know? But that was just my first thought. Like, that was <laughs> the first thing that sprang to mind. The second, holy crap, free will. Where is he? Haha. Um, what a good speech that encapsulates where these adults stand and who they are as people. Because we spent we spend a lot less time in their emotions in this book than we do in Lyra's. So it's a nice touch for Pullman to finally let us in. They kind of would feel like NPCs without this chapter mm. explaining where they come from and their motives. And then the next two for Eoric. Yeah, I do like that we have this moment between them. It, a lot of some of this conversation is a little of like exposition, but it's good. It there's, feels natural. Yeah, there's that idea of choice is a is a big thing, of course, as we've discussed, like and you said. But what I also love about these three chapters together, because I assume you've all read these three chapters since you were listening to this episode, is a lens that we get into the cultures of the witches and the bears. A lot of it is, of course, told to us through this, like from Serafina, but we see the bears in a moment. And I think that their cultures are actually supposed to juxtapose one another mm-hmm. because the bears like all seem to be within like the singular like culture, right? The singular nation in Svalbard, whereas the witches all have their own alliances, clans, they have different leaders, they're different tribes. And Serafina points out that witches have no notion of honor. I don't think she means that in like a bad way, but and we know for some of them there is an idea of morality but what she's saying is it's not this like codified sense of like rules there's no rituals behind it whereas we know from a different conversation from Serafina and like literally the next chapter because they two kind of go into each other that honor is very important to the Panzerbjorn like you're killing a younger bear in combat who was supposed to surrender was a deep violation of that honor and going off of that for like him to kill that other bear unprovoked is another taboo in bear culture, which, again, has more of these structures and rituals around combat and and other ways for their social strata that we'll see. And that stands in deep contrast to how we see the witches who have their own alliances and, like, as we're going to see, like, have no qualms with killing other witches. There isn't, like, always a ritual to why they might kill someone. They're just like, I don't know. It happened. Whatever. And, of course, like, the witches have demons. The bears do not. And... I had a last thought that doesn't really go with this, but it's something that just came to mind. Throwaway thought about how she was saying, like, I don't know. Things don't really matter when you live for hundreds of years because you know that opportunity will come again. It reminds me of an idea that Milan Kundera was exploring around this idea of, like, the weight of life and choices in the unbearable lightness of being. Real different, different philosophical discussion. We can come back to it another time in my life that is not now. Oh, yeah, and we're definitely going to have a reason to come back to it eventually, especially in Subtle Knife, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, the when you talked about how witches don't have honor, it, this chapter especially, maybe this is reading far too much into it, but, like, witches don't really have honor so much as they have pride, though. Mm. I feel like we see the witches have a lot of pride, um, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes for sure. But yeah, there's there's definitely some stuff coming up that they have a certain pride and maybe that comes from from being a female even. I mean, I wouldn't go that far as to give that credit to Pullman on this one, but no. uh, like I said, <laughs> totally a dig like into it, like far too far too deep here. Not to be too deep, it ain't that deep. 
Well, hashtag. we'll get into it later. I think regardless of whether it's intended or not, it's something we can really discuss in the way that they're mm-hmm. portrayed. So that's for the discussion. Yeah, well, even before that, we'll get there. There's yeah. something else. True, true, um, true. Lee says that he agrees with Serafina for the most part. He wants to end his days with no drama, on a little farm, some whiskey, some cigars, a good life, Dude, right? mood. This Dude. is my dream. Me too, Lee. I wish you and Serafina no cigars, would just though. settle down and I'll smoke the cigar. I'm Lee, remember? Oh, um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> he says he dreams of the day he can trade his balloon for retired life, which is the opposite of what witches would do. Serafina tells him, because flying is to be perfectly themselves, and breathing and flying are on the same level for them. And Lee says he envies that, but flying is just a job. But he chose that job, and his problem with this situation is that he did not choose the war. But neither did Lyra, and Serafina reminds him of that. This brave little girl is destined to help Yorick as well against the king. He doesn't believe that Lyra's fated. He says that Lyra has more free will than any of them. We are all subject to the fates, but we must all act as if we are not, said the witch, or die of despair. There is a curious prophecy about this child. She is destined to bring about the end of destiny. But she must do so without knowing what she is doing, as if it were her nature and not her destiny to do it. If she is told what she must do, it will all fail. Death will sweep through all the worlds. It will be the triumph of despair forever. The universes will all become nothing more than interlocking machines, blind and empty of thought, feeling, life. They looked down at Lyra, whose sleeping face, what little of it they could see inside her hood, wore a stubborn little frown. So this is where they start to sign the adoption papers, <laughs> right here, with a big old quill, and they're like, but it's signed with a, a feather from Kaiza. Oh, the goose feather. Yeah. That'd be actually kind of fun. Yep. So that's what they do here. Um, wow. Whoop. There it is. That prophecy, though. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to come back to that, I guess, also in a bit. Just touch on it a little. It's definitely acting like it's setting something up, but it kind of isn't, we later find out. So it's very weird. It's an interesting thing. Interesting concept. I thought it was something very immediate, and it turns out maybe not. Well, I think that it's a little of both, right? There's the things that are going on now, right? She's, is she destined to do it or is she not? And I think that asks the question of what's the difference between nature and destiny, mm-hmm. right? And what is your choice? Um, how are the two different? there's also that idea of how, like, how would you know when the prophecy really is complete? I mean, she's about to betray Eoric. Uh-huh. In a way. Even if it yeah. was meant to be good. She does betray him, technically, and she thinks it. Yeah, um, I was thinking that, too. There's a lot of, like, I don't know. Red herring say... betrayals. Yeah, but it's not even like, oh, the reader has to figure it out. It's just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. It's not as deep as, like, A Song of Ice and Fire always has us going, is what I mean. Like, not saying it's not deep, but that isn't, like, I think yeah. I'm digging too deep, because that's how that goes. Yeah, there are things that are deep in this, and they're just, it's, it's exploring different themes, of course. It's a different type of world building. It's a different story. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, yes. Gorsby asks, why are 
her witch is joining then. She says, well, what happened in Bullvanger fucking sucked, dude. And Lyra <laughs> is the enemy of the authorities. So, I mean, like, if that's Lyra's enemy, I guess it's our enemy, too. And, of course, Azriel has ties with Egyptians and, like, we're friends with Egyptians. Oh, my God. Uh, Serafina is like, I'm friends with Egyptians. <laughs> Yeah, Lee asks if the witches are going to be friends with him and tow the airship back after that, or if he has to rely on the wind. She says, if we can, we will. <laughs> Serious bitch. But once they reach Svalbard, things could change, depending on Eoric's situation and Lyra. Ha ha, about that. Lamau. <laughs> they move through the sky. They're 10,000 feet above the clouds, floating along with the witches' help. The basket is rocking and bumping more than normal because of this, and Lee tends to his instruments. It gets colder and colder as they rise, and he unrolls a canvas sheet to protect his children, Roger and Lyra, and then he lies down with his back against Eoric to stay warm. Aww. I'm saying that that could be a ship too, I'm just saying. Lyra awakens in the sleepy basket and asks Serafina how close are they to Svalbard. It's about 12 hours or so, apparently, if the winds are favorable, even though, you know, theoretically, the witches could help pull them. They want to avoid landing at the cliffs, though, because there are creatures living there. <laughs> pew pew, cliff gas, hate those fuckers. They're kind uh, of goofy. Yeah, they're like, I, They're, they're and weird. somewhat lovable in, like, a weird way. I don't know, there's a character in the second books that, like, I like more, probably, but... That's like a, a type gassed. of monster. Hmm. That we meet that ends up being like the gross lovable ones, in my opinion. There's but a lot of gross lovable things, in my opinion. The monsters, the creatures, I love them. It's very spooky. Tomorrow's Halloween, so this is spooky. <laughs> she is wondering how she's going to find Azriel, and she thinks maybe she should tell him about, you know, the whole I know you're my dad thing. But Serafina explains that Azriel doesn't plan on going back to Oxford. His work is bridging the worlds in the war to come. But Serafina says he needs something to complete his work. This sells her on it. Lyra takes this as the alethiometer, realizing it's her reason for going north and protecting it, saying the master couldn't have really wanted to poison Asriel. Mm. It's a little yes, little no. Yeah, a little column A, a little column B. Yeah. But Serafina doesn't have any answers for her about the alethiometer, and Lyra almost wants to try to read the alethiometer, but it's too cold, so she shuts that notion away. Man, this would be a different story if she had done that, you know? <laughs> right. Lyra asks why the witches don't get cold. To Serafina instead, not the alethiometer. But they are. They don't mind it, though, because they aren't harmed from the cold. Without the cold, they wouldn't be able to feel the tingle of stars or the Aurora's music, or even the silky moonlight on their arms. Lyra says she wants to feel these things, but Serafina says if she took her furs off, she would die. She tells Lyra that witches live hundreds of years. She is only 300, but the oldest witch mother is almost a thousand. Nice. One day, Yambe Aka will come for her. One day she'll come for me. She is the goddess of the dead. She comes to you smiling and kindly, and you know it is time to die. Serafina tells her the, that only women are witches, and they take men for lovers or husbands, and that's, many of them serve the witches. She then gives her some womanly advice. Men pass like butterflies. They're brave and beautiful, and they die. The witches birth their kids, and the kids live, if they are witches as well, or die, and they go on. Lyra asks if she loved Barter Corum. She did. 
Oh. When he rescued me, he was young and strong and full of pride and beauty. I loved him at once. I would have changed my nature. I would have forsaken the star tingle and the music of the aurora. I would have never flown again. I would have given all that up in a moment without a thought to be Egyptian boat wife and cook for him and share his bed and bear his children. But you cannot change what you are. Only what you do. I am a witch. He is a human. I stayed with him for long enough to bear him a child. But unfortunately, there isn't a happy ending to this, even in the child factor, because the child was a boy and he died in a sickness 40 years ago from the East. It broke her heart. It broke Coram's. And then her mother died and she was named Clan Queen and had to fly off to do her duty. She never saw Coram again, but she watched over him, sending him herbs when he needed healing in a battle, and she stayed away, hoping he'd forget her and find a human wife. Damn. I'm fine. So first I want to point out this whole idea of, like, you know, she couldn't change what she is, she accepted who she is, and I think that's a big part of these books, right? It's it's a coming-of-age story for children we hear it about the demons and the people who understand what demons they are and the ones who don't we're going to see it in a moment with yofer rackinson being unable to accept who and what he is and what it what that means but something that i do kind of wonder a different note regarding you know this relationship between seraphina and farter and seeing like you know how much they care for each other chloe how can you ship lee and seraphina when there's farter and seraphina i i legitimately wonder this i'm not trying to so, like troll it's just a, i'm curious because in life you can love a lot of people mm-hmm. and sometimes even if you know you break your heart over that person and I mean, it, it, look at Serafina, and it, again, it's something that we're going to come into play. There's even more. This wraps up into what we were just talking about above, that the witches have a certain amount of pride, and Serafina and Fardacorum both have pride in this matter, huh. right? Lyra tells Serafina, you should see him, and Serafina's like, no, I don't want him to feel human. And it's bittersweet because it's not just that. But it's also Serafina doesn't want to feel human, right? She is severing herself from that feeling, from that life. It's something that sometimes when you push that person away for so long, there's so much scar tissue. And she's connecting with another person, right? She connected with Lee on the ride here and explained her way of life and they connected on it. And later on, she it, the time's passed, right? Like, have you ever had a love where the time's passed? Come on, man, that happens. Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, it's been 40 years and, and more. What did she say earlier? That for her, time is like nothing. Like, she's like, okay, well, maybe in a couple, you know, decades or so, or maybe, a, maybe you know, a, the next century turn. We'll see it happen again. Whatever. Time is different for her. It flows different for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lee and her have a lot of parallels with flying, different reasons for choosing to fly and different reasons they would choose not to. And I do love, especially after learning more about Farter Quorum in future books, I do love this relationship. But I do also love the idea of just like Lee and Serafina maybe finding happiness, right? It could happen. For a time until her heart breaks again when he dies, like a the small, plushy human. human. Yep. Yeah, we all die. Well, yeah. he'll never die, though, so. Anyway, um, yeah, thank you. Uh, here on that. 1000 year old witch level. I'm I'm over here, not even 300. I'm here at like 260. 
Well, I'm next, Yamke Abba. Come get me. <laughs> oh, Lyra asks Serafina, so why do people have demons? Uh, and Serafina's like, I don't know. No one knows. It's what differentiates us from animals. But you know what Eoric said to me. He said that his armor for him was like what a demon is for a person. It's his soul, he said. But that's where they're different again, because he made his armor himself. They took his first armor away when they sent him into exile, and he found some sky iron and made some new armor, like making a new soul. We can't make our demons. Aww. Thanks, I'm five. Yeah, I just like the way that she... I think Pullman does a great job of re- writing child dialogue. He does. Um, Lyra is worried about Yorick and tells Serafina that she loves Yorick so much that she wishes that Yorick wasn't coming to Svalbard because he could be killed. And then Serafina's like, I'm going to reveal it. I'm going to tell you who Yorick really is. He is Backstory time. the true king of Svalbard. Had he not committed a crime. It's not Yofer. <gasps> Gasp! Oh my god. Uh, I did not see this coming. <laughs> did you or did you not? I am No, curious. I don't think I really did. I mean, I kind of did. It's not like well foreshadowed or anything. She tells Lyra that Yofer is quite curious. He makes treaties and alliances. It's pretty weird. And he lives in a palace, unlike the other ice bears and rumors have swirled around that yofer tricked yorick into his crime oh my god what a drama this is very telenovela i know to, uh, to pull that out here lyra then in true telenovela style <laughs> lays out her daddy issues of why yorick reminds her of her father and oh asks god. what he did in depth she's like you gotta tell me seraphina i gotta know this is just what happened to my dad and i'm like don't no! think it's but okay a little (laughs) he wasn't so seraphina tells her the fight was over a she-bear and the male bear that eoric fought for her would not display signs of surrender even though eoric was the clear winner in the fight the young bear kept going and eoric ended up killing him not wounding him okay that is a little bit like what happened to the azrael just a wee bit yeah that's true now that now that we lay it out like this i'm like okay yeah, I guess. But did he surrender? The other guy? No. But, like, I mean, the parallels of, you know, yeah, getting no, everything absolutely. taken from you for because you were in a love triangle and decided yeah. to stop making it a triangle. Yeah. A little bit. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Bears, man. Bears, I don't get them. Lyra remembers the Palmerian professor who had said that Yofer tricked his way to the throne, and Lyra had been told by Yorick, though, that bears couldn't perform trickery. We had an entire, like, chapter named after it. Fencing. <laughs> Seraphina says, when bears act like people, maybe they can be tricked. Uh, when they act like bears, maybe they cannot. And no bear really drinks alcohol. Good for them. But Yorick did in his depression of exile, which let the Trollison people trick him. And Lyra's like, yeah, that's pretty clever. I think you're much more clever than Mrs. Coulter, Serafina. Yeah, like, already adopted by Serafina. Now she's hashing out mommy issues with her. It's going good. It's going good. You know, mommy issues, daddy issues. We're covering it all with Serafina Pakala today. <laughs> but so, my next topic, if Eoric was acting like a human, and that's why he was tricked, 
Do you think that Serafina was acting more human than witch with Farter Coral? I mean, whose pride is it that she stays away for, his or hers? I think it's a little bit of both, right? Because, yeah. I mean, I, I think you gave such a great mature answer about love, and I think that's part of it too, right? I, I'm not it's... saying people need to like themselves, right? But ideally, in in healthy relationships, people are able to support each other, right? To become the best version of who they are themselves. And the fact of the matter is, I guess, in Seraphina and Farter Corm's relationship, they couldn't because what he needed to do and what he wanted to do was live on boats and, and sail. And that's his culture. That's who he is as a person. For Seraphina, it's to fly and it just doesn't... It can't. Yeah. Right? They can't live their full lives um, and be able to support each other being that because for her to be with him, she would have to have given up who she is, and that's not the best version of herself, being Farger Quorum's boat wife. And that's where the comparison of that idea of a relationship between Lee and Serafina come in, because for him, for a time, they could be fleetingly happy together. They both fly, and sometimes it is fun for him to fly, and he goes places, and I would say that in the end, their relationship does improve the other from them knowing the other, right? They do improve each other, and learn things from each other in this conversation where they learn and grow, and I'm sure in future conversations. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible. And I mean, mm -hmm. friendship does that too. Sure. Yeah, but I like, know, I'm just saying. I'm just saying, that's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm not, I'm not going against what you said. I just felt like adding that on, because I thought about our friendship, but... Um... <laughs> Never mind. Oh my god. <laughs> Wait. No, it's fine. I, uh, I'm gonna edit that out even though it's a beautiful moment. <laughs> what? That's like, now that we're Lee and Serafina. Yeah, we are. Oh my god. How come you get to be the witch? This is so unfair. I want to fly. I don't know. Because you, you thought you can be the witch. We can switch it up. You just were like, should I do it because of the accent? We can switch it up next time. No, no, no. It's fine. I'll just look. I'll pine. And look longingly You'll at the pine, pine branch. Yeah, exactly. So Lyra then asks her next question. What's dust? And Seraphina's like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, witches have never really worried about it. She knows that, I don't know, there's dust. And where it is, it is uh, clearly with this disgust. But there's also fear. See the authority and the magisterium and Coulter. And the witches actually see everything to do with dust, and they wonder at it, and they're like, mm, I don't really give a fuck about that. Don't fret and tear things apart like the church does to understand it. The language in this passage reminded me of something in A Song of Ice and Fire that Highburn, the character, says. He says to like to understand the living, you, you take apart dead people. To understand death, he takes apart the living. And it's a very religious uh -uh. statement, and that's very much so what the church does, right? Like, in this story, that's what they're doing. Um, they're they're taking apart life to understand death and understand their religious values and things and it's interesting. There's, there's such an interesting thing here going on too. Speaking of that, which is like they're on one hand trying to understand it, but at the same time they're afraid to understand it, right? So. Uh, because it might go against what they thought and their order of things. 
anyway. No, I get that. I think it is interesting. Like, this is how they're trying to understand it. And their experiments don't stop. You know, like, even in the other books, obviously you guys know that, like, the outside spin-off books are gonna have some sort of magisterium presence in them. Like, the villain's never defeated, right? The final villain is really death. I don't know. But I actually don't know that. I want the next book. But it's just interesting that that's how they go about experiments and they, like, are constantly trying to understand the mysteries of life and how they can relate to their authority and power. Well, I think what we see is, and you see that even in Bolvangar, mm-hmm. they're trying to understand it not necessarily in pursuit of knowledge in the way that Asriel is, right? Mm-hmm. Or the way we see other characters do. So they're in pursuit of it as learning how to use this thing to control other people. Yep, how to harness this power. Yeah, they're using it, uh, they're interested in it as a form of power and control, which is seems in line with the way that Pullman understands uh, the way that religion functions for him. Yeah, absolutely. Lyra remembers some of the particle information from the intercessor at Gabriel College, who was clear that elementary particles and religion had a link. She says that dust ain't old, and most church things are old. She wonders if Asriel will tell her, and gives into the cold, telling Serafina she needs to lie down or she may die. Uh, very dramatic. I love her so much. I feel that way all the time. I feel that way right now, like 24-7, every minute of every day, that's me. I could die at any moment, like, in bed, just curled up. Mm-hmm. If Yam-ke-aka. you put me, like, in a blanket, yeah, Yamkeava comes for me. I'm gonna start saying that shit all the time. is coming for me. <laughs> in The I Sims, the Grim Reaper literally comes for your, like, dead Sims to come take them. You can plead with them, and, like, I'm just oh. imagining you pleading with Yamkeava, like, don't take her. Like, she can't. What, what will I do? What will I offer? Um, you know, I, I decided to Google this literally just now. Akka is a female spirit in uh, Sami shamanism mm-hmm. in Finnish and Estonian mythology. Its worship was common and took the forms of sacrifice, prayer, and various other rituals. This is all on Wikipedia. But I think that there might be different kinds of Akkas and Jambe Akka, spelled with a J instead of a Y, y um, probably same deal. The Akka yeah. of the Dead is a goddess of the underworld who soothes mm. spirits of dead babies, but all other spirits dwell in sorrow. Her land of the dead is said to mirror the land of the living, where everything is opposite. So the dead are buried with the essentials of living. I'm only reading these aloud from Wikipedia, everyone. I've not summarized this, e.g. knives. And anything that would make their afterlife better. Hmm. Interesting. That is interesting. I love it. Also, still wish she would come for me. Yeah, Old Woman of the Dead is another way that uh, Yambe Aka is described on a different website called Occult World, which uh, has a lot of gears on the... It's got a steampunky looking logo. But anyways, it, 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 it I didn't realize that this came from, you know, the Sami culture, which makes That's sense. Great. ties back to, like, what... Lo was telling us earlier. Hell yeah, about those influences. Yeah, probably. Lo's actually fucking been to these places, I guess. I know. We are. We have not. Well, you came close to some, right? You come close to them. No. Yes. No. Maybe. At least to like Oxford, you were like within the square continent. That's true. I was within that same country. The square continent. (laughs) Yeah. 
the <laughs> bean. I don't know. All all countries are beans in a way. You you've been closest though, so you get the gold star sticker. Wow, um, amaze! So Lyra snuggles up next to Roger with Pan. It's real cute. Oh, <laughs> sad. I love them. Serafina wakes Lee up. She needs his help to captain as the winds and the cold began to attack them. The witches were struggling and holding the balloon, and if they let go, it would hit Nova Zembla at 100 miles per hour. He lets out some gas, me too, because they're too high up, and Lyra and Roger stir from the noise. Lyra's focused on not leaping up in fear, and Pan and Roger's demon Celsilla are clinging together. Roger is being really sweet and cheerful. He's trying to like keep Lyra, you know, in good spirits, Aww. telling her it's all okay. We'll get warm soon, Lyra. And the balloon starts descending into thick fog. Lee lets out a little more gas, so it yep. brings him down farther. Yep, you too. And yep. suddenly, they're attacked. It's a creature with leathery wings and huge hooked claws and a wide mouth and bulging eyes. It comes climbing toward Lee in the basket. York hits it and falls out of the basket. York tells her, that's a cliff ghast. <laughs> not in that voice. That's not my York voice, y'all know. That they need to bring the balloon to the ground to defend against the foul-smelling creatures. And then comes another jerk. And another, and the balloon begins to hurtle to the ground at high speeds, crashing into rock walls. Lyra sees Lee shoot a cliff guest with his long-barreled pistol, and then she clings to Yorick in fear, eyes closed, noises from the creatures and the wind hitting the basket. She then finds herself hurled out of the basket, into the snow, shaken, breathless, spitting out snow, and she and Pan slide so far they're lost from the others. They land in some snowdrifts where visibility's low, and they hear nothing but cliff gasps and waves on rocks. She calls for Yorick and Roger, but no response comes, and decides yelling out is probably a poor decision in these unknown lands. She checks the alethiometer, no damage. They only hardy. find... Yeah, it is. It's, like, hard. It's, like, that That alloy is just, like, you could break shit with it. But, like, like is the outside gold? Because gold's not a very hard... Any... Anyway, sorry. Getting yeah, off I don't topic. Know. It's not at all, so I don't... I don't know, maybe it's like fake alchemized gold by an alchemist, which obviously yeah. wouldn't be a real thing. But I was going to say was maybe one, it's gold plated, but then like through after everything it goes through, like that shit would have rubbed off by now, you know? And it's old. Yeah. Thousand years old. No, it's not a thousand years. We know this. It's like what, 300-ish or something. Yeah. They only find, the only thing they find out in the snow is... Four emptying sandbags that were punctured that had been attached to the balloon. And they walk up and down the beach, climbing rocks. And Pan is in owl mode, animal corner. He's observant. Like I've said right now, he's being observant. And he then changes into his mouse form to comfort Lyra because she's frightened and worried their friends are gone forever. But then she sees a familiar shape until it becomes unfamiliar. Oh. <laughs> she's about to shout, You're a... And then she stops herself in time. She's like, you're not who I thought you were. She doesn't actually say that aloud, but that's what's going on probably in anyone's head in that moment. I have definitely done this multiple times. All the time. I know. I'm like, yeah, I'm waving and you're going to just have, I'm going to pretend it's someone behind you. Pretend I was waving at literally anyone. God, life's a simulation. <laughs> the Sims. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, so it's not Yorick. That's why she stops herself. It's a different armored bear. Hashtag and not then. all armored bears. Lyra. And then. and then? And then another. And another what? one. Oh my god, and then what? Another one. Another bear? Another one. And another? Another one. Look under your chair. Boom. Boom, boom. <laughs> she asks, where did you all come from? Oh, no, wait. Sorry, my bad. It's the other way around. They ask Lyra where she came from, and she's like, the sky? And they're like, all right, well, you're coming with us. You're a prisoner now. All right, everyone, turn down your earbuds, because Eliana's just going to be a bear for the next two chapters. <laughs> a lot of background roaring. She's been practicing all day. Right now, she's drinking something to help her throat so she can roar. This is not helpful for my throat. Background. I realized I should have actually had water and not just bourbon. <laughs> no, bourbon's good for your throat. Is it? Yeah, the first it like smooths the the vocal cords. Oh, wow! The first oh. EP I recorded an EP and I was nervous, oh and the guy gave me a shot of whiskey. He asked my mom, he's like, "Is it okay if she has a shot of whiskey?" Because my mom was there and I was recording an album, and uh, my mom, I was like sixteen or something, and I was like, "Yeah, absolutely." I didn't know you recorded an album. It was a long time ago. It's a uh, I know Thousand there's years a couple old. people that have it. I don't think I even have it anymore. So, well, we need to find that. Oh my god. We should make that a reward. I think it should be. Listen to 16-year-old Chloe sing and play songs into a microphone. Amazing. Amazing. Um, We're on chapter 19. Captivity, you guys. Yes, in silence, as in with no roaring, the bears take Lara up the cliffs. And then finally, a bear tells her to look up, and she sees a massive building. It is filled with carvings of bears. I quite liked this description. It's carved all over with representations of warfare, showing bears victorious and scrailing surrendering, showing Tartars chained and slaving in the fire mines, showing zeppelins flying from all parts of the world, bearing gifts and tributes to the king of the bears, Yofu Rockinson. Is someone projecting? Oh. Are you saying that I'm Yofu? Oh my god, no, I meant Yofu is projecting, but... Oh, I'm like, um, excuse me. No. Uh, I'm like, I can't take gifts. Like, I didn't really think about it. I was like, oh, that's crazy. But like, this motherfucker, actually, I've been using a new one. You guys, you should get onto this one. This mother clucker. Oh, cute. It's a very good it place. I want it to be in my vernacular, so I'm just going to start using it. I decided, but this mother clucker. What was his name in the Golden Compass again? Uh, Ragnarok or Rockinson. Oh, yeah. Ragnar, it wasn't that, you're right. It was the like Ragnar, Ragnar of Fen. So, this is, like, all metal and crazy looking, but, like, also, Yofer, this is a little, like, this isn't what he's done. Like, what? He thinks, like, the world is bowing to him? Yeah. I mean, that's what he wants, right? This is his goal. Man, this is his, uh, his goal wall, or what is it called? His wall in which he manifests his ideas and dreams. Exactly. Yes, that is the term. And Lyra, uh... Lyra takes his word for it. She can't really see that far. And the carvings are covered in bird shit. And then it turns out as they get closer, everywhere in the palace is filthy. Everywhere bears are, like, demanding passwords from her. (laughs) Password. (laughs) She's like, I don't fucking speak bear. Uh, She compares them all to Eoric, which, of course, is best bear. And... This is a fucking metaphor. This yes. kingdom is made of shit. Literally. Like Bird lies shit. and poop. 
<laughs> Why isn't pooper gold? Oh my god. And like it smells like rancid seal fat and Lyra gets thrown in prison. Among her rags of clothes, Lyra consults the alethiometer about Yorick and she learns Yorick and Roger are a day away and their plan is to bust into the place. Okay, no plan at all. <laughs> They're just gonna go in there. Like, just wing we'll it. Move. Yeah. But paw it. Oh my god. Lyra is like, I wish we were witches. I wish we were like witches, Pan, and that Pan could carry a message out to Eeyore, could escape and separate painlessly. He's not a fucking, like, he's not your owl. I mean, he could be. Yeah, he could be. Right we'll talk now. about that in the dusty discussion a bit. Maybe in the dusty discussion, too, the regular discussion, but. Wow. Definitely in the dusty discussion. I have some thoughts. Some thoughts. Wow. Yeah. Thoughts. But until, unlike those thoughts, there's another voice from the darkness and rags. It's a guy with a serpent demon, but not that guy with the serpent demon. This one is Jotham Santilia, and he is very salty right now because he's a professor of cosmology at the University of Gloucester. And he's like, fuck that Professor Trelawney, and no, not that Professor Trelawney. I like Though- that one. <laughs> He's very mad at this Trelawney, a.k.a. the Palmarian Professor, whom we said before. And I like this insult that he uses for him, so I, I brought it into this episode. It's a coxcomb. What? What, did you, what is it? No, I don't know. I just like the way it sounded. Hold on, I'm Googling it now. Um, I was going to say, I feel like we should know what it actually means. So a coxcomb, I th- I brought it in because it was a funny word. A but dandy! It, I know, a dandy, a vain and conceited man. But I also just like the idea of a honeycomb. A silly honeycomb. <laughs> well, that's how it comes about in my mind. <laughs> anyway. Oh Shalani's not that sweet, though. No, absolutely not. Yeah, so Lyra lies to Santalia about knowing whether Surprise. or not Trelawney has published a paper on gamma rays and dust. Santalia calls Trelawney a thief. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I know this guy's mad in her head. She's like, this guy's totally angry and mad and crazy. But she's like, I'm going to feed him some info to try to get stuff out of him. So she flatters him, telling him he deserves a good student with all his knowledge. This is great warm up for later Mm -hmm. for her lying. She's going to do a lot of lying. And then Santelia says something mildly profound. Yes, he said. Yes, I believe you're right. There is a correspondence between the microcosm and the macrocosm. The stars are alive, child. Did you know that? Everything out there is alive, and there are grand purposes abroad. The universe is full of intentions, you know. Everything happens for a purpose. Your purpose is to remind me of that. Good, good. In my despair, I had forgotten. Good. Excellent, my child. So I I do want to touch on this in the discussion. Apparently it's going to get even dustier with Chloe. But before then, it turns out Trelawney was invited to be vice-chancellor by Yofer until betrayal. Oh my god. Because apparently he found out the last piece to that Barnard-Stokes theorem that we've been talking about before regarding other worlds. So, quite interesting that the last piece of the theorem is here in Svalbard, where Asriel is. Hmm. Anyway. Hmm. More world-building about bear culture and how Yorick is fucked. Yeah, Lyra asks about Asriel, and Trelawney flips out. He's like, don't talk about him that loudly. He, he He's not to be talked of. Yeah, he's actually imprisoned here by charge of Mrs. Coulter, which um, 
It's one way to take revenge on your ex-lover. Uh, by the way, Yofer is very taken by Mrs. Coulter, and I quite like the scene, so I like mother, it out. like daughter. Yeah, this one yes, I thought was yes. just kind of cute. Runs in the family. Uh, yeah, actually, you're right. <laughs> they take naps. They fuck bears. Uh. No, never. But he's afraid of Lord Asriel too, you know. Eofer's playing a difficult game, but he's clever. He's done what they both want. He's kept Lord Asriel isolated to please Mrs. Coulter, and he's let Lord Asriel have all the equipment he wants to please him. Can't, can't last this equilibrium. Unstable, pleasing both sides. Eh? The wave function of this situation is going to collapse quite soon. I have it on good authority. Really? said Lyra, her mind elsewhere furiously thinking about what he'd just said. Yes, my demon's tongue can taste probability, you know. Yeah, mine, mine too. When do they feed us, Professor? Oh. I just love this scene because, like, this guy goes off and Lyra's like, yeah, for sure, my demon can also taste probability. Yeah, of course. Weirdo. Yeah, That's for this moment. It's a bummer, too, because this just, like... Oh, man. Uh, no spoilers, but, man, this guy actually writes a book about his imprisonment in, in Spellbird. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, it's referenced in Lyra's Oxford briefly. No spoilers, <laughs> but uh, it's good in-universe stuff. I do appreciate that. Um, Lyra's Oxford is very short. If you've finished um, the series, everyone... It's an easier lift than La Belle Sauvage, which now obviously Chloe has surpassed me on. Uh, hey, La Belle Sauvage is an easier lift than Commonwealth, so you have no excuses. Well, Guys. no, Lyra's Oxford is literally only like 40 pages, but in Don't enormous text. Oh, them. I want everyone to read La Belle Sauvage. You can do both. Hashtag. Can you, Eliana? I guess not. I, I picked one, alright? I only picked one, and it happened to be <laughs> Lyra's Oxford. Sorry, Chloe, that's it. And that's the furthest I'm gonna go. If you think, Eliana, carry. then you can do both. You said it. It's recorded on a podcast. God damn it, you're <laughs> editing. Fuck. God. Um, so, uh, uh, there's a lot in here about Asriel and Coulter and how Lyra feels about them, though, right? She was furiously thinking about the information that he just said about them, um, and I think she's feeling defensive of Asriel, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes we give men in our lives, including our dads, just way too much leeway and that yeah, they don't too deserve. Much credit. <sighs> Not gonna unpack it. <laughs> Moving on. So Lyra had just asked when they get served food, and Trelawney's unhelpful, so she starts listening to the cell for some clues. Pan is a bat. Yes, because it's Halloween season, and this is spoopy, and Pan just knew. Pan knew when we were doing this episode. Yeah, listen to our intro music. It's spooky. Spooky. <laughs> anyway. So as Lyra's scoping, she remembers what Yofer wanted most. A demon. She hadn't understood it first because they used the word pantsierborn, but now she's put it together. So Lyra hatches a plan. She realizes that what Yofer wants is a demon because he longs to be human. Uh -huh. I love this quote. The idea hovered and shimmered delicately, like a soap bubble, and she dared not even look at it directly in case it burst. But she was familiar with the way of ideas, and she let it shimmer, looking away, thinking about something else. And it's absolutely the way that it's described that someone should be using the alethiometer. Oh my gosh. 
I don't know. I liked it. I thought it was nice. So, I know. I did. I did too. (laughs) Um, I think it's so interesting, though, going back to the whole he longs to be human because it all comes into place. Like, this all slides into place. You get Seraphina projecting a little bit, right? That, oh, well, humans can be tricked, so maybe he's a bear acting like a human. And then you get all of a sudden that bubble, that idea just burst. And I love this passage coming up. I'm finally human and we're gonna be First, though, before we get to that passage, it's seal meat time. (laughs) Lyra's like, hold up on the seal meat. You gotta take me to Yofer right now. It is hashtag urgent. Yofer's gotta know first because he's the king. She tells the guard, I mean, you have to believe me. It's the law, not really, but you gotta be polite, which is in a way kind of the law. The guard's like, okay, okay. He agrees and takes her further into the palace where it smells even worse somehow than it did before. She was made to wait in a corridor, then in an anteroom, then outside a large door while bears discussed and argued and scurried back and forth, and she had time to look around at the preposterous decoration. The walls were rich with gilt plaster work, some of which were already peeling off or crumbling with damp, and the florid carpets were trodden with filth. Have you ever thought of bears just, like, trying to live in a castle, but they're bears, so they just shit everywhere and fuck it up? Yeah, I have watched Wee Bear Bears before, and you know what? Ice Bear's really fucking clean, alright? These are not my Ice Bear, okay? Pan is the messy one, as is Grizz. Well, Pan's like, okay, Grizz is the super messy one, Ice Bear's the clean one. So, this is on Yofer. <laughs> uh, but also, like, as you were pointing out earlier, like, the palace is made of shit. And what we're seeing here right now is that Yofer is, of course, masquerading as a human, and that it's all a, in every sense of the word, facade. I'm really proud of myself for that one. Oh my uh, God. The bears look at Lyra, because, she, and none of them are actually in armor, they are clad instead in fineries, hmm. and I think that it's very Emperor's new clothes in a way, right? The bears probably seem a little bit confused as to, like, why? Are we wearing these weird things? But it's fascinating what Pullman is critiquing, this idea of, like, dressing up. Because he's not really critiquing these bears for wanting to be human. He's critiquing Yofer for wanting to be human, and these other bears for putting stock in this finery and for dressing up and wearing a costume, because they are all unsure of who they are, unlike Yorick. But they're also unsure of who Yofer is, and it shows, obviously, yeah. because of this hesitation. Um, and it's interesting because he has hidden this dishonorableness that he has committed, which is mm-hmm. the only reason why they're still following him. That's true. That's true. Lyra describes Eofer as the biggest bear she's ever seen, and in his eyes she sees humanity as though there was a man in there. He has lots of bling on, and the effect on Lyra almost makes her quail. There on his knee is a doll that looks not like Cynthia from Rugrats, <laughs> but Mrs. Coulter. It's his <gasps> demon. Because of this, Lyra knows her plan is safe. Mrs. Coulter, she's a really cool dancer, Mrs. Coulter. Uh, I saw that because I saw that in the notes when we were typing this all up. We have a shared Google Doc. And I, I just started laughing. <laughs> it's all I can think of and just like her hair mm-hmm. like sticking up. For oh. more information on this really important insight... Check out our Patreon for $5 and up patrons in the video in which Chloe and I watch The Golden Compass and dissect it together. Oh, it's something. It's something. 
Lyra hides Pan and comes close and quietly says to Eofer, Our greetings to you, great king, she said quietly. Or I mean, my greetings, not his. I love that line. I, I, I thought that was so clever. It's so clever because she almost trips. Well, she does it a little... I, I don't know if she trips or if she did it on purpose. Yeah, it's ambiguous. Yeah, right? She's like, oh, wait, sorry, I meant me. Mm-hmm. I'm so used funny. to it, though, because I'm a demon. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's natural. She entices Eofer with news of Eoric and then reveals she is his demon. Gasp! She, she flatters him, saying, this is all very secret and not foreshadowed throughout the entire book, and not to harm her because she wants to be Eofer's demon instead of Eoric's. She totally dodges a question when Yofer's like, whoa, I don't understand how Yorick got a demon, and how- Why Yorick? Why not me? And she's like, mm, I'm gonna answer this other question instead. And she's like, I'm like a witch's demon. That's why I'm able to go far away from Yorick. Dusty discussion. Just had to announce it. I feel like it's important to announce what you're gonna hear if you stay on for the dustiest But not me. Discussion. I'm not gonna hear that. No, you won't. You, you're not allowed to. Literally. I'm too clean. I'm too clean. You're not that clean. Yeah, I, my demon hasn't settled yet. That's the real problem. Yeah, well, godliness is cleanliness. So Lyra alludes to the experiments at Bolvanger of intercision. Wait, I think that's actually a thing that's going on here. I think that's literally a thing that's going on in this story. Like dust, cleanliness? Yeah, absolutely. Whoa. Mind blown. Oh my god. Billy Corgan Literally. wrote the story. Oh my god. <laughs> Lyra alludes to the experiments at Bulvanger of Intercision, and that there are other experiments involving animals and demons. She reveals Eoric is on his way to retrieve her, and that she knows what he's up to, but she wants to be Eofer's. Lyra continues to explain that she told Eofer all of this because he can't just kill Eoric, the last bear with a demon, according to the story, or she'll disappear. It must be single combat. So there's something to be said here, I think, about why Yofer believes Lyra. Because obviously, like, he believes her because he really wants to. He desperately wants a demon. But I think there's another part of it, right, talking about bear culture, where to the extent that Yofer has, for the most part, shed his armor, which is supposed to be like his soul, and he's donned all these jewels and a doll in its stead in his attempt to be human, and I think that there's a bit of a misinterpretation of how demonhood works, right, or what a demon really is, based on the way that Pansomirian culture and, like, literally how they are yeah. works, because Yorick explains, like, a bear's armor is like his soul. He lost his previous armor and he made himself a new one because bears can just do that or whatever and technically if you think about it an armor can be worn by anyone it can be stolen Yorick's armor was stolen from him so i wonder if the mindset where yofer thinks i can just take Yorick's armor if i kill him take his demon is what's clouding yofer's judgment I probably won't cover this in the Dusty discussion. It might be something someday we come back to when someday. we hit it. But well, maybe when I'm, I do yeah. Dusty. Yeah, you'll be Dusty too. Maybe. <laughs> I'm yeah. only three hundred years old. Bitch, she got dust all over her. Um, no, you you might even be pretty Dusty by then. So it might be worthwhile then. But I think I just realized something that repeats itself. It's really great. I like it. It was interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Eliana. You you stirred something. I have no idea what I've done. But you did it. 
Um, I love that, though. He has to shed and sever himself from his idea of armor, basically. And it's like a coping mechanism. We see it in both bears when you think about it. We've seen a lot of the adults and a lot of the villains act like this, right? Like, Coulter does not treat her demon like Lyra treats her demon currently, right? Mm. Like, it's, you don't see Col- you don't see Lyra treating Pan inappropriately. You don't see, you know, separating from your demon. It's not natural. And... Eofer's not an adult, obviously. He's kind of more of a villain in this section of the story because, you know, the whole, like, killing his dad on accident-ish thing and then, like, the hush story and then, you know, like, the whole rare battle thing that pumps up this whole ending of this and, you know, just all the things. But my more basic interpretation I also had was, like, the rich in general, right? Like, I, they always want more to fill their empty soul. Mm. My soul's not enough. I need the trendiest thing. Enslaving a human demon to do my bidding or tell me I'm clever? Yes. Who was it that cloned their dog? Didn't someone clone their dog? Like, that's greedy. What the fuck? You don't need to. He doesn't know the first thing about what it means to have a demon and or be a human, even though he's trying to be one. And it's obvious because he doesn't actually care about his real soul. Or is greed yeah. a big part of humanity? Who knows? Whoa. Deep. Hashtag deep. That's why he's so greedy. Oh my god. Okay. Um, I, I think that's all really good points, though. Thank you. Especially yes. the stuff you don't understand. Because yeah. you don't know. I'm so clean. <laughs> I'm so pure. Stop saying that. You're not. <laughs> Only 300 years old, you thousand-year-old hag. Okay. Oh my god. You guys, Chloe's actually younger than me. Yambayaka, come get her. Yofer is like, how can I fight him? He is an outcast. Impossible. That's not actually the wording that he uses. This is my dramatic reenaction. Lyra continues the charade and stresses like, this is just how it's gotta be. <laughs> Alright? And now she's also like terrified for Yorick because turns out Yofer, especially when he's angry, is massive. Yofer's like, alright, well, prove it. Where... Where's the receipts? Show me that you're a demon. Lyra is like, okay, well, what do you want to know? And Yofer's like, tell me the first creature that I killed, which is a weird flex. Right? And she's like, okay, but first I have to be alone to consult the alethiometer and not, you know, the demon mirror right in front of you. For reasons. For obvious reasons. First she's like, asking the alethiometer, how far is Yorick? And he's four hours away. She asks how she can tell... Yorick and the doodad's like you just have to trust him she can't warn Great. him and then she gets a vision from the alethiometer she asked further and learned that Eofer had been alone on the ice as a young bear on his first hunting expedition and had come across a solitary bear they had quarreled and fought and Eofer had killed him this in itself would have been a crime but it was worse than simple murder for Eofer learned later that the other bear was his own father Gasp! bears were brought up by their mothers and seldom saw their fathers Naturally, Eofer concealed the truth of what he had done. No one knew but Eofer himself, and now Lyra knew as well. Wow. Wow. It's deep. Deep cut. It, 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 it's not something that happens again, like, in the main plot, but it almost feels like a foreshadowing or feeling of some stuff to come. Mm, and I see um, now. I see it. I see it. Yeah, a little bit, right? But right. interestingly enough, yeah, it, it's like a total plot twist, though. Like, it does feel like a little foreshadowy, and it's also interesting... About, like, just Lyra finding out about murders, right? Like, through the Elethiometer, yeah. finally. It's like, these are the things she does need to know to get through situations and navigate. But 
It's not the direct answer, obviously. It's fascinating that she's never daunted. She's like, all right, well, now I know that he's murdered his dad. And she's like, okay. Interesting. She's like, yeah, that's it. She basically takes it as a deadpan. Interesting. That's all. Um, also, congrats. Welcome to your career in politics, Eofer. Like, you're murdering, covering things up. You're on the way. Yeah. It's not a long-lived, not a long-lived career. Anyway, uh, so uh, something that I thought was interesting about the way Yofer's uh, first kill goes, right, is it kind of is almost like this weird Oedipus homage. But this is a children's book, so Pullman's not trying to go 0 to 100 right now, right, with Yofer suddenly, you know, banging his mom. And, but that's what happens in the story of Oedipus, of course, right? He comes to a crossroads and kills this other, like, guy and then finds out way, way later when it's way too late, like, that was my dad. True. I married my mom. But, like, it's an irony. I would put the argument in that Pullman says, too, that it's not a children's book. It's just he writes books for anyone that will read them and his publisher wanted it to be a youth book. Sure, no, that could be I, a retcon, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I think he just may. I mean, maybe I think he just wasn't trying to be like, and then the bear fucked his bear mom. Yeah, I mean, he's not flashy about that, right? Yeah, like, about sex in these books. There's not a lot of like, and then we fucked. There's no like George R. R. Martin level descriptions of like weird body parts you didn't want to know about, you know? Yeah. So I mean, like, I I think it's a slight head nod to it mm-hmm. or or inspired by it but it's not anything big Definitely i like the separation of gender is interesting there too yeah i mean the one thing is this true of real bears first of all anyway sorry um you know how like uh lion cubs tend to be raised by lionesses but anyways so uh the the one thing is i guess if it is like a head nod maybe it's talking about like you know thebes under oedipus wasn't necessarily thriving mm-hmm. right it was it was a city in mm. sin and so is now svalbard i could see that i like that a lot maybe yeah. maybe it also reminds me of that um opposite gender demon thing that mm. the sons are raised with the moms Oh uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah. Uh, maybe not. I mean, that happens a lot in animal stuff. Hold I think, on. like you were I'm saying. I'm gonna look but... up polar bears for <laughs> a second. No, but actually, I am. Like they might. I mean, maybe this is like real of, of bears. Like mama bears is like a thing people say every now and then. One second, sorry. Yeah. I mean, they are supposed to be more territorial, etc. You know, so it makes sense. This is too much text. <laughs> I give up. Oh my god. The Wikipedia, art- the Wikipedia article was too hard, everyone. Um, so Pan is urging Lyra to flatter Eofer, and she does. She calls him great and strong to be able to do any of that, and Eofer's like, nice, this is great, thanks. And Lyra tells Eofer, so if we're into this, maybe you should tell your guards, don't attack Eoric, don't tell the other bears, tell them you're going to fight Eoric, and make the bears think it's your idea. And then she's like, cool, well, good, everything's good. Yep, everything's going according to Kekaku right now, but I do wish I could tell Yorick the plan. Well, too bad. <laughs> you know, Santelia can be a hater on the Palmerian professor, who is arguably the worst, I agree, 
because stealing mm-hmm. someone's complete foundational concept and thesis that they've worked on and then passing it off as your own thought that was created in your brain with no help or credit from anyone in a community that helped build it is wow. wrong. But in this moment, really helpful for Lyra. So good for that. That's not related to anything. No. What can we get out of Chloe by uh, telling her? Ooh. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yep. Uh, chapter 20, Mortal Kombat, which yes. you cannot convince me, all right? You cannot convince me that this title of this chapter was not inspired by the Mortal Kombat with a K in its name series, the video games, which came out in 1992. I, This is canon for me. Actually, I'm just going to solve it. Uh, Philip Pullman. I like, I like the idea of you not actually solving it better. Too late. I'm tweeting at Philip Pullman right now. Oh no! Philip Pullman, who's your favorite Mortal Kombat character and why is it Chun-Li? You, so, I know I can't convince you it wasn't because I think it has to be. I think it's about Sub-Zero. Literally. Like, pun intentionally. Because animalities wow. were originally a fan rumor in the development team for Mortal Kombat. Like, they, they ended up actually putting it into the game. There were people that believed before Mortal Kombat 2, Sub-Zero could morph into a polar bear. And there was wow. a strategy guide that was publishing fake pictures with that happening. Like, Are you telling me that Philip Pullman was in that like Mortal Kombat deep lore shit? Dude, I hope so. I really is do. He... I hope he responds. Is the way that Philip Pullman feels about Mortal Kombat the way that we feel about these books of Asphalt. Like, do you think that if this were modern day, would Phil Pullman, A, either make a podcast or B, have a Twitch channel about Mortal Kombat? I hope podcast because I don't know if Twitch would be right for his uh, prose. But, I mean, like, so they actually explode into cartoon animals in Mortal Kombat 3. And, or sorry, that's Ultimate. Because the regular Mortal Kombat 3, there's, like, differentiations. There's so many damn Mortal Kombat games. But the third one introduced these glowing-looking, realistic animals that practice animalities. And then in the trilogy for Mortal Kombat that came out for N64, the polar bear fatality move is given to Sub-Zero. And I don't know. I know more about, like, Tekken than this. Sorry. But uh, I don't know much more about Mortal Kombat and some of that lore. But I thought that was nuts. Like, I think you're right. I think you're onto something. <laughs> you heard it here first, everyone, on Girls Gone Canon, that the Mortal Kombat title is, in fact, it, it is canon that it is inspired by the Mortal Kombat with a K video game. And if it's not, we're not wrong, first off. Um, and also... <laughs> this is a, an artistic, critical I mean, interpretation? If, if Philip Pullman doesn't respond to us, then we can't be wrong. I mean, obviously. You're a thousand years old. You know everything. Yep. Uh, but it, all but we also know is that it was rare for a bear to kill another bear. Usually it was accidental or because of mistaken signals, like with Yorick and the bear that he killed. So Yofer murdering his father was also rare. But bears still settle disputes using fights, although seldom, and it's usually ceremonial as well. The combat ground in Yofer's armor and claws are groomed before this. He gets a manicure. Uh, they give him some, like, stick-on nails. They're all with gold, and they peel the gold off. Huge okay. waste. Absolutely. Lyra washes in dread. Yeah. 
Uh, another betrayal, right? Leading Eoric into this, she feels. She's just dreading it. Uh, Eoric is likely to be exhausted from marching to find Lyra with no food in his belly, maybe even injured. She doesn't know what happened to him in the balloon crash. And here Lyra is, making him fight for her with no knowledge of anything about to happen. Eofer demonstrates his sharpness of the claw on a dead walrus, and Lyra is like, I'm going to excuse myself and sob for a little bit. Yeah, and speaking of uh, fighting video games, the moment Prince described as him crushing that skull of uh, the dead walrus, it, they used the language of it like an egg. And it reminds me of that scene in Wreck-It Ralph with Zangief talking about crushing man's skull like sparrow egg between my thighs. Iconic. Iconic. <sighs> There's no optimistic remark from Pan. All that Lyra can do is read the alethiometer and see it say the same thing. He's now away. Trust him. And also the alethiometer seems to actually mock her for asking <laughs> the same thing again, which I think starts pointing towards some ideas about it. Yeah, it's sentient, it seems. Like, it can make jokes. That's interesting. Like, who is controlling mm-hmm. this thing? Is it Lyra or not? Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. Bears begin to crowd the combat ground as the word gets around about what's going to happen. There are several tents for high-ranking bears and a separate one for she-bears. Lyra wanted to learn more about that, but figured that may have to wait for another time. So sorry, us. Sorry, Tana. Sorry, Lyra. None of that. No she-bears for you. I bet Pullman really did want to go there and was like, we're just not going to. I hope we get some sort of she-bearness. Yeah, I we deserve it, first of all. It was such a tease. Yeah, and I, it seems like it's a, obviously a big part of how the fucking culture survives. Yeah, they only raise these male bears. Right? Ugh. <sighs> Whatever. Yeah. Garbage. Um, she stays close to Eofer, and the court is acting really snooty. They're all decorated in plumes, badges, and tokens. This is some medieval bear shit. Some of the court It's a nice tale with bears. It's a bear's tale. Wow! Thanks. Some of his court carries little mannequins that are a lot like the demon doll, but Eofer's discarded that now. So, like you said earlier, Eliana, they're all, like, baffled. They're like, what do we do now, lol? I don't want this doll. Right? Lyra realizes none of these bears know what they are. They're all uncertain. They're copying people and each other, well, bears and each other. And Lyra is just quiet and watching the air as the fog begins to lift. And she longs for a warmer sky with better memories. Tears are freezing as they fall down her face. And Pan can't comfort her. He has to hide. He tries from her pocket. But bears don't understand tears. And Pan is in the pocket. So Lyra is feeling truly alone. I love this description, though. Honestly, real talk for a split second. She's pretty lucky that bears don't understand tears. Because that would have been real confusing for a lot of Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Thank God. Yeah. Thank Metatron. Well... The authority. Think the authority. I love this description of Eofer, though. He reared like a great metal tower, shining in polished steel, the smooth plates inlaid with wires of gold. His helmet enclosed the upper part of his head in a glistening carapace of silver gray, with deep eye slits, and the underside of his body was protected by a close-fitting sark of chainmail. It was when she saw this that Lyra realized that she had betrayed Yorick Burdison, for Yorick had nothing like it. His armor protected only his back and sides. She looked at Yofa Rackinson, so sleek and powerful, and felt a deep sickness in her, like guilt and fear combined. Ah! Mm. She I didn't work- roared in a while. 
I just love that. I think it's a magnificent description and terrifying, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She's terrified looking at him in all this armor. He's, Eofer looks so put together. He's the mountain. Yeah, exactly. This is about to be Cleganable. Get hype. Oh. You're kind of right, though. I know. So, Lyra wakes the courage up to ask Eofer if she should speak to Eoric first, as the bears roar behind them at his entrance to fool him. <laughs> I don't know if it sounds like roaring or just like weird noises. I added a couple of roars too to like yeah. make it more, you know, full. I think it's full. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. Eoric is coming up the way. Eofer is so excited to fight. He doesn't give a fuck what Lyra does. He's like, go for it. And she confronts Eoric. She apologizes repeatedly to him, spilling the plan, saying, I kind of fucked you over. She tells him she made him agree to fight Eoric first instead of killing Eoric right away as the winner gains the crown. And, you know, she's all worried because this is awful, but he thinks it's brilliant, right? And me as a reader also thinks this is brilliant because, I mean, how else was she going to get out of it? You knew Eoric had to come back and finish what was started. And uh, she gave him a chance, a fighting chance, because otherwise he was just walking in death. So she explains she had to make sure he had a chance. And he cuts her off and he says, Blackwa? No! You are Lyra's silver tongue. To fight him is all I want. Come, little demon. Oh, Sandor, I love you. <laughs> Have a good Cleganebowl. Still better than season eight. Oh my um, god. The bears part as they approach, and she touches Eoric briefly, telling him to fight well and that he's the real king. All in act, right? Obviously, all in act. Eoric gives a speech to the bears, and it's excellent. Bears! Yorick Bernison roared. An echo rang back from the palace walls and startled birds out of their nests. He went on. The terms of this combat are these. If Yofer Rackinson kills me, then he will be king forever. Save from challenge or dispute. If I kill Yofer Rackinson, I shall be your king. My first order to all of you will be to tear down that palace, that perfumed house of mockery and tinsel, and hurl the gold and marble into the sea. Iron is bare metal. Gold is not. Yofor Rackinson has polluted Svalbard. I have come to cleanse it. Yofer Rackinson, I challenge you! Then Yofer bounded forward a step or two as if he could hardly hold himself back. Bears, he roared in his turn. Eoric Bernison has come back at my invitation. I drew him here. It is for me to make the terms of this combat, and they are these. If I kill Yorick Bernison, his flesh shall be torn apart and scattered to the cliff ghasts. His head shall be displayed above my palace. His memory shall be obliterated. It shall be a capital crime to speak his name. He continued, and then each bear spoke again. It was a formula, a ritual faithfully followed. I just love that they both begin their speeches each time with bears! Like... The people of Bear! Uh, the ice bears! Oh 
my gosh. I I thought of a lot during this as we read it. I was like, oh, there's some shit in here that we're going to see soon. Uh, you know, Eofer is threatening to have his flesh all pulled apart and scattered to the cliff ghasts. And Eoric, I think, is more honorable than that, which we're going to see mm-hmm. in a way. Um, he does something that, you know, it's very metal. And to us, it might sound evil, but eating his heart is also kind of more honorable than giving him away to the cliff ghasts, I think. I don't know if any other characters would agree, but we'll casually talk later. I can see why it would be. Also, um, it reminds me of Indiana Jones. That was a traumatic thing to watch as a child. I died when I was reading this because Eofer is like, his head is going to be displayed in a very prominent viewing place where everyone can see it, but you're all going to forget him because his memory is going to be cleansed. And I'm like, Eofer, you're a stupid bitch. (laughs) He's a dumb bitch. Eofer is stupid. He kind of is. I'm going to put his head up, and then everyone's going to forget him forever. And I'm like, no, Eofer, you're putting his head up. Medieval bear shit. Yeah, everyone's going to remember, because literally his head's there. All right. Lyra then watches the two, Yofer looking king-like in his well-tended armor, Yorick looking small, his armor dented and dusty. Whoa. But it is his soul, so it is already better than Yofer's, who has no regard for his soul. He's discontent with it. He's greedy. She sees the other bears sizing them up as well. She thinks that they represent two different futures and destinies. Whoa, deep. It means something mm. in the context of this story. Interesting. Interesting. The bears begin to fight like rock loosened by earthquake, crashing and snarling and biting. Maybe more like icebergs, but I guess he says like rock. Anyways, things start to look bad for our hero. And then he gets a good grip on Yofer's chainmail and pulls his cute outfit apart. Bit by bit. This is lewd. Thanks. What are we reading? He's bleeding and panting from the attempt. Ooh, sexy. So (laughs) back to not looking good. Things are bad again. Oh, this is a great match, right? Back and forth. The yard begins to turn crimson mud after a while of this. And Eofer's armor is starting to look shabby. He no longer looks beautiful. The king has been pulled down. Lyra can tell Eoric is limping on his left forepaw. And his blows have started becoming softer. Eofer notices it, too, and begins to taunt him and, like, name-calls him. Some pretty inappropriate names, like, Eofer, you are a king. Show some class. Where's your honor? Nowhere. He has disregarded it like his armor. Honor and armor disregarded. Uh, Lyra is in tears. She's like, I've lost Eorik. He's gonna die. And she looks up, thinking she must be brave for him, and her tears pretty much block her from seeing what's about to happen. Or it was tricky, and she just wouldn't have seen it. Mm-hmm. You could not trick a bear, but as Lyra had shown him, Eofer did not want to be a bear. He wanted to be a man, and Eoric was tricking him. Yorick finds a firm rock to back up on and then chooses his moment. Eofer comes in on Yorick's weak side, and Yorick moves, exploding up into his footing and slashing at his exposed jaw, which comes clean, flying through the air. And I am also not convinced that this is not inspired by wrestling. Also, you know, like the going up against like the, the ropes. Anyway. I love it. <laughs> I also love that it's playing with, like, the wounded gazelle gambit kind of trope, mm. right? Like, Pullman does it really nicely, though, because it's almost subverted. Like, it's not used generally by the morally gray people, right? It's like either a villain or a hero is playing it, or yeah. a damsel decoy. But it's not like a warrior bear who's made clear that he's doing the impossible and tricking a bear. Like, it's a great setup. It's a satisfying finish. Uh, and it's metal. Metal as fuck, because Eofer's <laughs> tongue lolls out his throat is open the king is voiceless and biteless and yorick lunges and 
tears into his neck and finishes him and then tears into his chest, pulls him open, eats his heart. And I do think that's more honorable than letting him be torn apart and given to cliff guests. Yeah. I mean, he takes, like you said, his heart. And I think um, what you were saying about the trickery that Yorick pulls here, we discussed this earlier on in the series, but... It's it's a book where we see our protagonist, right? Our hero, Lyra. She uses trickery, right? Trickery, again, is kind of a... Here, amongst a lot of characters, trickery is a heroic trait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for Lyra, I mean, it's good until it isn't, obviously, but she uses it for survival. Um, she uses it to get by, and we learn that it's impressive, right? Like... But when he said, you're Lyra Silvertongue, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's also diplomacy in a way, right? We see Asriel obviously has a pretty high diplomacy skill, even though he's kind of a douche. Kind of. Like, he, like, shows up at the beginning of the story and he's all like, ooh, give me money for something you probably shouldn't fund me for, but you should. And he's very sly and slimy and, like, it's it's an admirable quality to have the, the ambitious... The ambitious, like, slyness and cleverness, the Slytherin qualities. Asriel is a Slytherin because he has ambition. He'd be a Ravenclaw if he actually cared about the knowledge for the knowledge and not for what the knowledge could give him. Yeah. Anyways, we have this scene at the end. Yorick Bernison's voice rose above the clamor. Bears! Who is your king? And the cry came back in a roar. Like that of all the sea-smooth pebbles in the world in an ocean-battering storm. Yorick Bonasad! Yorick Bonasad! The bears knew what they must do. Every single badge and sash and coronet was thrown off at once and trampled contemptuously underfoot to be forgotten in a moment. They were Yorick's bears now and true bears, not uncertain semi-humans, conscious only of a torturing inferiority. Oh my god. Yay, <laughs> you're a king. You're a king, you're a king, you're a king. Wow. <laughs> and then, of course, as the demon regent, Lyra, she gets to release human <laughs> prisoners from the dungeons. She tells Eoric, you better get those people out of there. They're all down there and they're suffering. And Eoric agrees because they're going to be smashed in the ceremony the bears are participating in soon if they don't get them out, which is tearing down Eofer's castle, the kingdom so to speak. What does it mean? Wow. Is it a metaphor? Is it a metaphor? Don't know. It's also like a literal, but is it a metaphor? Yeah. It's a little of both. Both. Lyra tries to tend to Yorick, and he gives her some blood moss to patch his wounds with, and he tells her to fold his flesh over it, and then hold snow until it freezes together. Hmm. Is that... I didn't know that would work, but I guess so. I mean, is that magic? Do we have blood moss here? Did you see the 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 thing going around Twitter of the people with the bio glue? I think that's what this is. But moss, not, but not at all. Yeah, but blood moss. Maybe it's blood moss extract. Philip, what is blood moss? To know, <laughs> it's just interesting. I wonder if it yeah. is a real, real, real thing. Like, I don't know in, in the north because I just don't know if the snow will let it freeze. To- Together, but it makes sense. I don't know. It's that cold. Seems made up. It's also in like I mean they have things that are like blood moss esque in a lot of other fantasy video mm. games, but it doesn't seem yeah. to be. No, I figure it's some life. sort of like 
That makes sense. I mean, Kel Drogo in Game of Thrones has something like that, right? No, uh, he rubbed the mud on himself. That's what it was. But in the show, I'm <laughs> saying, doesn't Miri Mazdor give him something to hold to it and say he, he a... need to put a poultice to it? Yeah, but it's not, like, guaranteed to heal him, as we can right. see. Because no, he right, rubs right. mud on himself. I just meant that it's something that exists in fantasy, right? Like, yeah. this is, yeah, yeah. obviously there's some magical leaf that you can put there and sew up and you're good to go. Uh, but snow, that's the weird part that I'm most interested in. I don't give a shit about the blood moss. It's the snow part. Like, does mm-hmm. that fuse skin together? That's crazy. I guess in the freezing cold. Uh, Lyra's mittens are wet with blood when she's done. But the there. bleeding has pri- finally stopped. She finds out there's no point talking to Santelia because he's mad. And she's anxious about getting back to her group. So she curls up and keeps out of the way. And then she piles snow on her and makes Pan be a wolverine to keep her warm. This is how bears sleep, and you're not a bear, Lyra. Again, she's stealing a new identity in this book. I mean this lightheartedly, especially when you think of how she's so alone. Oh, she just wants to belong. She is. Yeah. Are you my mother? Yeah. Nope, before it's Coulter. Yeah, before she was uh trying to be a sailor, then Egyptian, now she's trying to be a bear. Yeah. Aww. She's eventually awakened, though, to speak with the king, who, by the way, again, is now Yorick. Yeah. And she's freezing cold with her eyes all frozen solid shut until Pan thaws them out because maybe, you know, she's not a bear. <laughs> she fails to stand. So the bear has her climb on to ride over and she lands at a steep hollow where bears and Roger are standing and he updates her on his journey. They crashed into a mountain and fell down a slope and luckily Roger ended up with Yorick because I don't know where everyone else is. <laughs> oh, the bears... The bears are creating this new shelter out of driftwood and canvas in the background, and they're all happy to be working. And I thought that was great. I like this rebuilding. Yeah. This rebuilding is nice. And they're rebuilding out of much humbler in- ingredients, right? I thought that was great. Materials, they're, uh, the, the materials are not oh, quite so dark. his dark materials? Oh. His humble materials. Wow. His icy, his cold materials? Oh my god. The young bear who woke her up offers her food. So she eats a raw seal kidney for the first time. I'm very interested in all of this. She also eats mm-hmm. blubber from the seal, which tastes like hazelnut flavored cream. And there's a couple things here. I love that we started the last chapter with her thinking the kingdom smelled like foul seal blubber. And now she's actually open-mindedly trying it and it tastes delicious, right? It's a metaphor for King Yorick's rule. Good King Yorick and for friendship, right? All the friends we made along the way. But truly... It turns out that, like, raw blubber does taste like cream and that it only gets fishy when you cook Hmm. it or if it's, like, bad and rotten. And apparently seal is super gamey but good dark meat. And there's this translated anthropology book by Fritjof Nansen that goes into detail called Eskimo Life. And he says, this is translated, The blubber of seals and whales is generally eaten raw. My dainty readers will, of course, shudder at the very thought of eating raw blubber, but I can assure them that especially when quite fresh, it is good. It has a sweet, perhaps mawkish taste, reminding one of cream, with nothing of what we would call fishy or oily flavor. It does not make itself felt until the blubber has been boiled or roasted or when it grows rancid. Yum. Yeah, I mean, like, that doesn't sound bad. I really kind of want to try raw seal meat now. Me too. I'm like, I'm adventurous. I I wouldn't really eat... I don't know if I'd eat, like, the regular gamey meat raw. I guess I could, but I, I don't know if I would. I, I mean, probably would cook that, but... If you don't like it, spit it out, you know? Yeah, exactly. 
And, like, is this a survival tip? Because they don't just eat the blubber, right? They also eat the seal kidney, which, remember, kids, seal kidney, not bear kidney. Yes, survival tips. This is like Ned's Declassified, but us. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, Coconut Head, let's keep going. Not that, Ned. Oh, my God, Coconut Head. (laughs) I actually really liked that show. That was a cute show. It was really fun. Uh, she and Roger pig out on Seal for a while. They start to finally feel warm, which is probably a nice feeling in that coldness. She is finally taken to Eorik, sitting under the Aurora, Roarer, proudly with her friend, the king, and she learns Mrs. Coulter was probably the reason why Eofer's dominance was like a spell on all the bears. She visited Eofer before Eorik's exile and gave Eofer a drug he administered to Hjalmir Hjalmirsson. What? That's a fake name. <laughs> The bear that Eorik He's killed. real! Not anymore, he isn't. <laughs> to make him forget himself. She's just drugging people, though. Is that, like, okay? No, it's not. It's really not. You can't just um, go drugging people, Coulter. You can't. And she's not gonna listen to my warning, probably, but... So, the way that Yofer's palace is presented as full of, like, all these gaudy things, right? The language... Yorick uses to to describe it as this this perfumed house. He has other words, too. And he has this call to destroy it. And it kind of actually reminds me of a couple moments in the Bible. Because I'm going to keep heralding back to this. Because, of course, this is reacting against Christianity. So I assume everything can be like tied back to some sort of allegory or biblical story. And it reminds me of the idea of casting down false idols. Which comes up a few times in the Bible. But it especially comes up within stories of... Figures like Jezebel, right, who swayed King Ahab, king of Israel, away from worshipping Yahweh uh, into the worship of these false gods and idols. And she brought her religion and tempted them towards sin as an outsider. And I think that's very much how Mrs. Coulter is presented within bear culture, right? And tempting the bears away from their nature, from being bears and introducing all these like weird human things that have tainted them and, and the sullied and created this like opulent palace. Mm-hmm. She's Jezebel here. I don't yeah, know. She is the temptress for the bears. Mm-hmm. The bear temptress, like mother yeah. and daughter. And since the human laws don't actually apply on Svalbard, Coulter had basically used this to set up a bullvanger here, probably with worse things going on, and Eofer was going to let her. They all ask what Coulter's doing now, and Lyra asks the alethiometer. While she waits for them to get a torch so that she can see properly, she asks them what happened to Scoresby and the witches. I think it's interesting that these future books coming up, they incorporate more of the judicial system right they start talking more about law how the government is incorporated into this system and i think it's interesting Coulter was planning to keep setting up these testing facilities and they were all going to be crueler than the last Hmm. that is kind of interesting i mean she specifically chose this place so they could have more fucked up Kyburn-esque experiments. So, yeah, I think that is interesting, but till then, the witches turns out were attacked by another clan. Maybe allied to the gobblers, maybe not. Yorick didn't see what happened to Seraphina or Lee besides Lee and the balloon soaring upwards, probably because, like, four sandbags fell, whatever. In Torchlight, they learn that Lee is heading toward Nova Zembla, and he's still afloat and unharmed, which is good news. But there's bad news. No! 
Mrs. Coulter knows their whereabouts, and she's bringing an armed transport ship to Svalbard, and soon she'll know about Eofru's defeat from cliff guests who are gossipy little fuckers and witches. She'd been planning to come to take Eofru's power away from him with a regiment of Tartars, and plans to have Azriel killed wherever he's being kept, because she knows what Azriel is about to do, and she wants to stop him. And finally, she learns that Coulter is after well, her, Lyra, again, because Duh. she wants something that Lyra has. And Asriel wants it, too. She's puzzled, she's unsure, and she's like, I guess it's probably the alethiometer, but she doesn't feel like the alethiometer is referring to itself like it usually does. Therefore, that's not the missing piece. But she doesn't trust her gut, and she just moves on, accepting it. Lyra asks Yorick, then, how far is it to my father? And he says, I can take you. Lyra then closes her eyes before they leave for the journey, feeling exhausted from all that reading, and goes to sleep for a bit before they wake her. And off she goes, because is it, I mean, is it the end of a Northern Light slash Golden Compass chapter if Lyra doesn't fall asleep at the end? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it is. Truly. It has it has to happen at least once every chapter. It it does. So good good call. Lyra gets to sleep more than most people in this book, so I'm super envious. <laughs> Same. So we're gonna move into our discussion next, you guys. As we've mentioned, this will cover the main three books in the trilogy. We will talk about some connections to the future. Uh, and then we will move into the dustiest discussion after that, where I will monologue like an evil villain about the books I have read that Eliana has not. So I wanted to start quickly, before we get into some other deeper discussion things, uh, with coming back to Centelia's speech that I thought was really nice about... To, to reiterate, he goes, There is a correspondence between the microcosm and the macrocosm. The stars are alive, child. Did you know that? Everything out there is alive. And their grand purposes are broad. The universe is full of intentions you know. And this kind of ties into stuff in the later books, right? Of course, this idea of everything being alive. As we see what happens with the dead as their atoms release and join with everything else. And and then there becomes sort of life everywhere, right? But this idea of the universe being full of intentions. On one hand, like this doesn't stress it that much. But we see that this starts creeping up a little bit in these chapters, right? With the alethiometer kind of scolding Lyra. And then we find out later on uh, Yorick, right? Who, who plays a prominent role in these chapters. He warns will of like i mean everything has intentions and it's even more suspicious when you have a knife where you can't see the edge how can you know what that knife's intentions are and that ends up playing a really big role towards the end of this trilogy of books mm -hmm. and so i i wanted to call that out i thought that was um a really poignant little speech uh especially the intentions it's it, yeah. and i can't tell you because i'm going to talk about it again <laughs> however uh it does not cease to be important in this entire series so it's a great thing to call out because this continues to be important this is a very hard theme that we hear even in the following mm. two spin-off books but yeah that uh, santelia is interesting especially because she's just like this guy's crazy but i can use like 10 percent yeah. of what he's saying these are my but he's not crazy. Like, most of what he was saying was true about Coulter and Asriel, and Lyra's just rejecting it about Asriel because she doesn't want to believe anything that he's saying. 
I mean, how could she? Like, Asriel's been her hero for so long, and, like, she... Yeah, all she has. She is refusing or unable or unwilling or a little bit of all to see what the lithiometer is telling her about Asriel. And, yeah, that, that lithiometer has to be eyes of the beholder for what you interpret, and she is. She's avoiding it. And I think it's the same as that feeling in her stomach that it's not the alethiometer that he needs, right? Yeah. And everything in these past few chapters has sort of been hinting at that. They're like, yeah, because she, the only reason we think it's the alethiometer is because Lyra keeps saying, I mean, it's got to be that, right? Yeah. And it's like, no, it doesn't got to be that, Lyra. And she's just, well, what's the common denominator? She just doesn't know. Uh, yeah. I, uh... Yeah, and it's interesting they don't give us the symbols for it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very ambiguous that Pullman does not tell us. Bear soul heart eating crap. Eoric eating the heart of Eofer, who Eofer would have just had him torn apart and fed to the cliff guests. And Eoric later eats Lee's heart so that the cliff guests don't get him. So one could assume mm-hmm. that it was an honorable death. He was still trying to respect him in his death, even though the guy was a total dick. And uh, he ate his heart, so that, A, because he won, B, because then the cliff guests couldn't have it. It's a little of both. I think there's um, yeah. an aspect to it that is what you said, as well as... Fuck this guy on metal. There's that, and I think there's a respectfulness, as you said, because he's taking Yofer into him, uh, right? As he... I'm going to re- rephrase that. I hope you keep it, though. I'm going to keep it. Uh, he's taking Gopher into him as he by consuming him. Uh, he he does the same with Lee, right? Because you know people don't necessarily always want to consume things that are dirty. So in doing so, I think that's a very respectful. Uh, we've talked about this or touched on it a little in our Song of Ice and Fire series podcast, but uh, there there's um I, I want to say it was in Papua New Guinea. I could be wrong. A culture, right, of cannibals, and they practice cannibalism as a death, mm-hmm. right? In the, and it was respectful. It was because you loved these people, and so you would eat them because then they become part of you, and you bring them with you everywhere, right? And it also so. shows his growth, right? Like, he's no longer the guy that went and killed the dude in that battle. That wouldn't, you know, he he's the one that when he killed that other dude in his battle that was showing, you know, like he was obviously something was wrong, but he finally did it just to, because he just wouldn't call it because he was drugged. Mm. And I mean, he works not no. that kind of bear now, right? <laughs> he's not that kind of bear. He's not. He's really not. He's a different bear now. And we're all different in life as we grow and learn. And Eoric did learn. Some people don't learn and they stay dumb bitches like Eofer. But Eoric learned and he not won. Not a person. So not a person. <laughs> to go bit. janet actually i don't know what i am um we need to talk about the witches mm, we do need to talk about the witches i know we talked about it with tana last episode but why is it always a crazy fucking witch who is love scorned by some earth man that has to come be batshit crazy and cause trouble like we get this in lyra's oxford and future books uh-huh. what we see this all the time and I mean, dusty discussion. I think add one or two times there too. What what is up with that? Yeah, I think on one hand it seems like he's trying to say they're above human rules, but on the other, I'm like, uh, there's a different subtext here, especially because a we know that all the witches are women, and b the bears, with the exception of, we've heard about she bears, but 
a lot of what we see of them is very male coded. Um, also, like he's literally set up the whole book. They're free spirits. They don't subscribe to male rules. They don't care about Earth human boys. Like if you go, then it is too bad. And like, yeah, Seraphina Pakala had her heart broken by the whole Farter Quorum situation. She had to go and like made herself leave. But that situation, if that's supposed to be not normal, obviously falling in love with a human, like some do, but most keep it keep it breezy. It's like an in and out, you know, going on there. Um, mm-hmm. Some do the children bearing, etc. But I just feel like if this is their life, and in a hundred years they'll have a new boyfriend, then why is it also some of them are crazy and they want to kill men for scorning them? I just don't pick one. Yeah. I feel like it kind of counteracts itself in the story. That's all. And like, and I guess there are different kind of witches and different witches in general, and witches aren't you know the same as Seraphina Pakala, obviously. But it just was a little like, I don't know. She says witches feel this way, except for these seven witches we meet in the story who are really pissed that this guy cheated on them or did something else or, I don't know. It's great to show that they're vicious. It's just. Why is it always witches? Yeah. No, I agree. Um, it, it's very suspicious. Yeah. It, it's something that it does cause the raising of eyebrows, and I'm like, what are you trying to say yeah. about witches? And, and I, what? It's like that they're emotional? I, and maybe it ties back to the pride thing, but also at the same time, like you said, like, they live for hundreds of years. What do they give a shit? Like... Yeah, if Jerry down the block cheats on her with Brittany from the fucking 7-Eleven, like, what would they care? They'd just go find a hotter guy to be mesmerized by their beauty and ferociousness. Yeah, so, I don't know. Whatever. It's it's not uh, realistic, Philip. We should chat about it. So, there's also this cool contrast, I felt. This whole bear chapter is a is a very loud violence, right? You get the sense yeah. here that you're, yeah, you're amidst bear roars and Blood is boiling and boom, boom, boom. And the ending almost feels more like quiet violence, right? Because mm-hmm. it just like slowly pulls you in and then the boom there it, like happens. Like you're, you're like a frog in a pot slowly boiling where this is like you're a frog thrown into the boiling pot. You know, that, that quiet violence of the children being mutilated and uh, destroying the connection to life. And I don't know, bear riots are just in the streets. And I see kind of why the movie might have thought this was too hard to pull off tonally because A, they had already fucked the whole movie and B, the page context helps a lot. The inner thoughts help a lot. The movie's happy tones probably couldn't pull off this change from like, we're all bears to then all of a sudden a very low key, like we're walking in to hang out with Asriel. We're with Asriel, gonna do some father-daughter time. Things are awful, but, like, I feel good about it, you know? Like, we're here. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna help him. He said I can help him. And then, like, oh, no, Asriel's killing my friend. Oh, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like it's just, like, a... Like, all of a sudden, day crescendos. You're like, wow, what a great story. Now they're gonna go home in the next three chapters. And you're like, nope, nope, that was a lie. Yeah, I think it's part of what whether you like it or not, uh, makes it such an iconic ending, mm-hmm. right? Because it ends on that high note, like you said, or it seems like it's ending on a high note, and the next thing you know, you're like, Lyra, you did it! You're the best! Amazing! And then you're like, oh, Lyra, no! That's what you, you did! did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's all that subversion of, um, 
as we've talked about earlier, that that dramatization of finding out, like, wow, my parents are human? And they're not these, like, built-up figures that I thought that they were, as, as happens for a lot of people at this age, right? Going through puberty of, like, oh, yeah. huh, mom and dad. Not what I thought. I mean, not everyone finds out, like, oh, mom and dad. Child murderers, but whatever. A couple things that I wanted to touch on before you get super dusty, right? And I'm sure you're going to expand on this a little later in the dusty discussion. But as Seraphina talks about having to give up Fartercorum and, and what that meant, it also kind of reminds me of the end of the books, right? Where she makes that choice and she does what she can, but it's as Lyra and Will have to give each other up. And Seraphina chooses, in a way it's similar, right? They had to give each other up if they were going to live full lives as what yeah. they are. Because otherwise, either Lyra or Will were going to have to sacrifice the rest of their lives with the exception of one decade. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's what she does, right? They have to go back to their worlds. Yeah. And that's what Seraphina does. She goes back to her world. But part of it also had to do with Seraphina feeling it was too painful. And um, perhaps Fartacorum felt the same, um, unsure, because I have only read these three books in Lyra's Oxford, and I don't know exactly how they felt. And um, oh my god, you know, I for, do. For, for them, it was like a choice, and there's an aspect of it that's sort of pride on each of their parts. For Lyra and Will, it was a choice that they made so that they could live out their full lives, but it had nothing to do with pride. They still wanted to see each other, etc. And I think that may, that's a different kind of pain in and of itself. Um, no context spoilers, but quote, my Serafina, unquote. Oh, why would you do that to me? Just wanted to make sure that you open your books and someday go back and not just read Lyra's Oxford over and over again. <laughs> Why would I read Lyra's Oxford over and over again? You probably again? know also... the birds by heart now, in it. I have I have once upon a time in the north somewhere in these boxes of things. Scavenger hunt. Oh my god. Oh, there's so much stuff. Anyway, and the last thing before I let Chloe take it is um this characterization of Yofa, right? We're obviously going to talk about this way more once we get to book three, but Yofer and the interaction he has with Lyra is very similar to the interaction that Metatron has with Mrs. Coulter. And I think that we're supposed to see other kinds of parallels between them, right? Because Metatron, of course, is standing in for this idea of God. And we don't get actually that much time with Metatron. We get some third-hand accounts of how he's terrible and has usurped all these things. But we actually get, I think, a lot more face time with Yofer and, and therefore characterization of him. So I think that uh, in a way we can sort of transpose one of like the characterization of one onto the other. And I think what we're, what I see from this is this idea of if Yofer is supposed to be a, a sort of like lower stakes parallel to the god that is being critiqued at the end of these books and Philip Pullman's uh, critique of religion. I think what we're seeing through Yofer is an interpretation of what is called like a jealous god, right? He's hungry for praise. And throughout the Bible, God actually says that 
I am a jealous god, right? And that's why they should have no false idols, no other gods before him. This is actually language from the Bible. And that's why he is jealous and exhibits that when he finds out that Yorick has a demon mm. and not him. He's like, how come Yorick has one? Why not me? It's, it's about that position of power. Am I not the right? fairest of them all? Exactly. And, and, and um, in fact, uh, there's this word zealous that people are supposed to exhibit this further this fervor and enthusiasm when they feel um religious connection with god and that actually has its roots in the same word as jealousy from the greek zealous and this emulation there's a fear mm. of being supplanted and you see that in yofer right and i don't think that in in the bible it's necessarily that god has that fear per se but this is what pullman is choosing to portray it as i mean there's differences in connotations and cultural mm. meanings of words that are lost because it's been like hundreds of years and we're translating this over and over again right yeah but there's also the way that lyra's flattery actually works on yofer and that has to do with the fact that yofer is hungry for praise and i think i'm reminded that in christianity it is sort of drilled into you that you're supposed to praise God constantly. And that is what Lyra does in order to convince you for like, oh yeah, this is totally what's happening. I will be your demon, mm. your servant, part of you. And that allows her to be able to play him because he exhibits these traits of God that are in the Bible, but Pullman puts a twist on it, that jealous God and the God who wants your praise. Yeah, and she's just the body of Christ. Amen. <laughs> exactly. And, and and I just, I feel like that's something that's going on with the way that you see that connection with Metatron at the end of, end of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Layered in jewels. The false god. Yes. Uh, and there's even a false god in, like, the Commonwealth, I would say, too. You get some very, hmm. just lots of different false gods and idols throughout all this. And it's very interesting. Puppets, so right? Secret. They're puppet rulers. Um, They're being played with strings and they don't even know. Yeah. Well, Eliana, this has been really fun, right. but it's time for you to sign off and for me to take over the dustiest cushion, which covers any extraneous books uh, outside of the main three in the trilogy, including La Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth, The Books of Dust. There's a bunch going on in here. This is your like weekly connect with me, you guys. A bunch going on that I am tying to La Belle Sauvage and also to The Commonwealth. There's been hundreds of millions of references about Lyra wanting to be a witch. Uh, Lyra wishes Pan and she were like witches in this. A little, uh, a little too soon there. Pan could carry a message to Eoric then. And what she learns, of course, is that is, that is her ultimate betrayal in the third book, right? Separating from him and leaving him when she has to go underground to get Roger. But after finally all these references come Commonwealth, here's Lyra pretending to be a witch, to survive without her demon. Uh, all of these books, it's taken so long. She even in this chapter says, she dodges the question of how a bear could have a demon and why Eoric explains that she's a witch's demon, able to go far from Eoric. Exactly what she's doing right now in the Commonwealth. Absolutely. Another thing that really shined to me, and I'm so bad Eliana cannot hear it, but the professor's speech about intentions really stood out about the microcosm and the macrocosm, the stars being alive, and that everything out there is alive. There are grand purposes and that the world is full of intentions 
everything happens for a reason. And this is what the big theme of the first three books are, right? It's destiny. Everything is fated. Lyra's fated. And she's being made to forget this now in the secret commonwealth. And that's a big reason why Pan has left her. She used to believe everything had a reason and people like Simon Talbot and Brant are poisoning her otherwise with their books. Which, by the way, I love that it's a critique on writers by Pullman, right? And their flashy, empty essays. Essayists that are young and in college just writing like, I don't know, barstool articles. It's it's a great commentary. Um, I didn't realize how well it connected, but this theme is very important moving forward. When she finishes it, she will totally get it, I hope. Okay, here's my big one, you guys, for the discussion. What the fuck is up with Malcolm's eye? Polstead, and is this a similar thing or what? In Captivity, Chapter 19, there was the paragraph. The idea hovered and shimmered delicately like a soap bubble, and she dared not even look at it directly in case it burst. But she was familiar with the way of ideas, and she let it shimmer, looking away, thinking about something else. That's so interesting because it's worded almost exactly like the migraine auras that Malcolm gets, without the migraine, of course, in La Belle Sauvage and the Commonwealth. Uh, Philip Pullman was interviewed by NPR and said that Malcolm experiences these auras, or the spangled ring, as he calls it, and he himself gets them as well. I thought that was great. Uh, and migraine headaches are caused by changes in the nervous system, and there's several stages they can progress through. Not all of the people that have it experience stages or visual auras, and it's like an electrical or chemical wave that moves across the cortex of your brain, and the visual cortex processes signals so when the wave spreads, you have hallucinations sometimes. The more common visual aura would be like a fortification spectrum, and it looks like almost like medieval fort walls, small holes of light that are shapes and lines. Um, so the language above of the shimmering comes back with Malcolm later, and this passage almost sounds exact. The black and silver patterns on her back seemed to flicker and shimmer for a moment, and Malcolm felt as if the spangled ring had changed its form and become a demon. But then Lord Asriel spoke suddenly. If that's not enough, there's also that line in chapter 6 where Tony Costa tells Lyra about different creatures in this world, like the ghosts who look like children with no heads. But he also talks about some called the windsuckers, which remind me of another character that we'll talk about. They drift about in the air. You come across clumps of them floated together sometimes or caught snagged on a bramble. As soon as they touch you, all the strength goes out of you. You can't see them, except as a kind of shimmer in the air. And in the subtle knife, we meet specters in chapter 6 as well. Uh, specters feeding on adults as a transparent moving shimmer comes up. And of course, there's the shimmer of dust surrounding people. Neat callbacks, but I want to know what's up with the migraine aura. Is it a cute self-insert from Pullman? Uh, do we know that Pullman arguably has self-inserted himself as Polstead now? Because if you read these books... Kind of feels like it, a la George R. R. Martin's Sam Tarly. Does this eye thing have anything to do with dust? It feels like it does. It reminds me of opening a window with the knife or stabbing a specter with the knife. Is it going to amount to nothing? Will it be like a migraine thing? I don't know. Will the rose oil and its application to the eye come in back? It has to come back after Commonwealth, right? The Commonwealth has to be about it. These are all mysteries that I now cannot solve until the next book, you guys. Um, so that's a wrap on this week's discussion. Just some food for thought, some dust for thought, and we'll go from there, right? We'll talk next week and we'll see if Eliana's gotten any further. Fingers crossed. Well, that's a wrap on the discussion. 
Eliana, you're welcome back into the fold. Wow, thank you. You're welcome. Sorry, sorry. It's all right. It, this is how it is. I am like Yorick, you know, welcome back after all these, all this time. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. We got through so much, and next week we end it all. Wow, fuck. Next week we end it all. Okay. Um, but also, it's the beginning of something new. Feels so right being here with you, and now something in your arms. I uh, okay. no. Mm-mm. Don't know what We're you're doing going for. We're doing High School Musical. We're nope. doing High School Musical next. Anyways, you guys, thank you so much for listening to us every week. We're so happy that you're tuning in still and you're into this. Uh, we're hoping to get into Subtle Knife next year, and I yes. can't wait, personally. I love Subtle Knife, and it's a good connector book. Amber Spyglass is off the chain. That's going to be wild when we get there. But for now, uh, you guys can find us on the internet. And if you want... You can send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com if you are interested in chatting about the episodes or tweet at us at girlsgonecanon on Twitter. And of course, keep up with us, right? We're going to be putting out new episodes soon about the BBC slash HBO series, which we're super excited for uh, this live action adaptation. You can find this over on Podbean, on Spotify, on Acast, on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on Dancer, on Vixen. I mean, it is almost the holiday season, so. (laughs) And hey, if you guys have not checked it out already, our $5 and up patrons have access to a video sode of Girls Gone Canon, where Eliana and I get a little tipsy and talk about the Golden Compass. We talk about a lot of the production value, uh, what kind of went on behind the scenes to make that movie a little messy. And we talk about the future, right? What we are excited for in His Dark Materials coming up and some of the awesome production stuff going on with that. So check it out, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And, of course, just stay tuned with us. Um, We are trying to figure out what our next Patreon episode is going to be. So, if you're a patron, shoot us some ideas on Patreon. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Bye, guys. Goodbye. (laughs) That sounded more like a Wookiee, sorry. I can't do it, the Wookiee thing. I don't I I can't I had a friend who's really good at it but gotta start practicing I guess I don't know it's that tis the season